0: Once you remove the elephant in the room, it's kind of just nice to exist in all of that space together. Once you remove it and it's no longer an unspoken thing, it frees you both in your relationship.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out with me. I'm Katie Dillbao. I'm really excited about this week's guest, you guys. It's someone who's had a tremendous impact on me in the last six months or so. And I can't wait for you to hear this episode. This is my writing teacher. This is someone who has helped me creatively more than anyone else recently. And when I met her, I... Knew that I wanted to know her and be around her. She's kind of a magical person. And I think you'll get that from this episode. I just listened back to it and learned so much. It's a long one. So at the end of the episode, I usually do a little segment called Likes and Learns. And I will do that again at the very end of the episode. So stick around. But it's going to be quick and short because I liked and learned a lot in this episode With Jess. And essentially that's what these podcasts are. If you're new to Let It Out, welcome. I've been doing this since 2013. And essentially, they're these long-form interview conversations where people share what they learned throughout their lives and careers and what they're currently learning and then what they like. And through a conversation, that's how we get that information. And listening back to this conversation with Jess, I learned a lot about how I want to structure my life. She gave some really interesting insights of how one thing that stuck with me was how she works on her creative work for 45 minutes in the mornings before she gets into email and texts and other things during the day. We talk about meditation and parenting and co-parenting. After a divorce, we talk about being a mom. We talk about creativity and writing and sharing your work with the world and Vulnerable, tender feelings and and being someone who feels a lot of feelings and feels things deeply. We talk about nostalgia Mentorship It's a great episode. I really loved this conversation and I really like this person and like I said She's been helping me a lot more I, I said this to her. I was like you have been more impactful to me in the past six months with processing my emotions by helping me to write about my emotions than any therapy or hypnosis or meditation or anything. I think creativity is really healing. And to have someone who can kind of be a midwife for your creativity, whether that's a friend or a mentor or a class that you take, I think is really useful and important. So I took a class here in New York that Jess taught, and then she became my writing mentor after that. And she This podcast, and she's a really fascinating person. So let's get to that episode as quickly as possible. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this podcast, share it. Send it to someone else who you think would like it. Stick around to the end. I'll give the emoji of this week's episode. And then I'm, as I mentioned, likes and learns. I'm doing an event with last week's podcast guest at the Hoxton in Williamsburg on the 17th of July, so I would love to see you then. And I'm teaching travel journaling and meditation and yoga, actually, on a cruise with my friends at Blueprint. It's not till next April, but I just thought I'd tell you guys, I'd love for you to come. The link is in the show notes and we're sending out emails with all the show notes and other things that you might like each week, other things we're liking each week. So if you want to get that email, great. If you don't want to have that in your inbox, that's fine too. The link is in, you know, wherever you're listening to this, you can get that. And I'm sitting on a lot of eggs. A lot of new things are going to be coming out this week summer that I'm going to share with you, but right now I'm just kind of sitting on some eggs. So I love you and enjoy this episode. Listen, my skin is very sensitive and I don't try out a lot of products, but I did try out this one called Bioclarity. A bunch of years ago and I still use it and I love it and now they are supporting the podcast. They're a clean, green skincare routine brand and they're 100% cruelty-free, paraben-free, sulfate-free, no artificial fragrances. They're 100% vegan and you can try them risk-free. They'll give you your money back if you don't like them. They make this easy-to-use skincare regimen that has great for you ingredients that you put on your skin and has really helped me honestly. I like the way the texture feels. It has this really potent color in the product that I want you guys to see. It's all natural and it's really easy to understand exactly what ingredients are in it. And I think it's helped me with some of my hyperpigmentation from acne scarring and knock on wood, but you know, my pimples are are doing great right now. I use their clear skin routine. It's for combination oily, breakout prone skin. They have other regimens too, but that's the one I use. And it comes with everything you need to, you know, have your skin be okay I really love it it's not overly drying it helps with the redness and the hyperpigmentation and it kind of evens my skin tone out I think you guys would really like it too there are three steps cleanse treat restore I used their I had a little Pimple the other day, and I used their spot treat, and I swear it just kind of like went away the next the next day. Which, you know, I sound like an infomercial right now, but honestly that happened, but who knows. Anyway, I think you guys would really like it. Try it and just see for yourself. You know, there's it's risk-free. So the link is in the show notes, bioclarity.com. And right now, for you guys, you can save 40% on a skincare routine, plus an additional 15%. Off of everything on their website. I really like their oil too. That's an incredible deal. And you just have to use my code, let it out, at checkout. So that's bioclarity.com for 40% off your routine plus 15% off everything on their website with my code, let it out, at checkout. Today's episode is made possible by Ned. Ned is a company that I love. I got to talk to the founders recently and they're these really lovely, kind people. Ned makes CBD products that are organic and whole and everything is slow crafted in small batches. They know their farmer who's this lovely, lovely guy who plays music for the plants and they make these full spectrum hemp products that are energetically infused with love and gratitude and positive vibes and I just really really love this company CBD has been really helpful to me and specifically Ned's products I love them so much they say that they make them with gentle slow extraction so they extract from the hemp flowers otherwise known as the buds and that makes their product different from anything else on the market so what is CBD CBD is not going to make you high it can't it just doesn't do that it's the part that is non-psychoactive. It's not the same thing that you think of when you think of You know, traditionally smoking weed. CBD is, like I said, non-psychoactive, but what it does help with is being a sleep aid. It's been used to treat insomnia. It can be anti-inflammatory. It can be a natural pain reliever. It's been used to help with anxiety and PTSD and to treat depression. It's rich in antioxidants. Anyway, it has a lot of benefits that different people use it for. I'll tell you what I use it for. I use it when I'm going out in a Social situation or about to record a podcast, it just kind of smooths the edges and it just kind of makes me feel more in my body. I'll take it in the evening before bed sometimes. I'll put it a few drops in my smoothie or I'll just put it under my tongue. I really love it and I think you guys should try it. And if you want to get 15% off, well, do whatever you want, but you know, if you want to try it, try it is what I mean. And if you want to get 15% off, definitely use the code Let It Out at checkout. That's Let It Out for 15% off. And you also get free shipping. So you just go to ww.hello slash let it out and use the code let it out in the you know checkout and you'll get 15% off. You're such a talented writer and just a person I want to be around. And I can speak from experience that you're an extremely talented and genuine teacher and editor. That's so
0: sweet. I'm like flushing. No, it's so
1: <laughs> true. And I'm I'm been I've been excited to have you on the podcast really since I met you. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Oh lord. So I
0: feel like I've been thinking about this a lot. Anytime you write a memoir, you spend a lot of time in your childhood, at least mentally. So where did I grow up? I grew up outside of Miami in Coral Springs. And then I would go back and forth to Barranquilla, Colombia, where my mom's family is. And so I had like these dual childhoods where, you know, on one side, I'm very privileged American and privileged in the way of, I have a roof over my head and I go to a school and, you know, my parents were middle, working middle class. And then I would go to Colombia and there was just so much poverty there and it was a totally different world. And I'm actually glad that I had that contrast because it did not allow me to take anything for granted back in, you know, when I would come back to the United States. As a child, I I think, you know those people who say like, oh, I've always been a writer. Yeah. I hate those people <laughs> and I am those people. <laughs> so it's like, I've been documenting my life since I could hold a pen. I mean, I have... I was saying I'm waiting for my dad to send these journals, but I have journals from, like, first grade, second grade, and I'm sure that they are so tedious and just like, today I had cereal, you know, the highlights of my day. But I've been doing this. I've been writing things down for a very long time. And the reality is that I didn't grow up in a house with books everywhere, uh, magazines. Like, I didn't even know that being an author, being a writer, was a career path that I could take. I just... I just thought it was something that other people did or they just magically appeared in libraries. I had no idea where they came from. And so I didn't actually start doing this work, writing and essays and publishing until after college. I was supposed to be, when I say supposed to, I mean according to my transcripts, I was supposed to be an elementary school teacher. And then something crazy happened, which is they wait till your last semester to do your internship. Uh So- I was about to graduate. I had one semester left. And I did my internship in a second grade classroom. And I was like, oh, no, I don't like children. (laughs) And this is terrible because I can't be in this career. But I didn't change majors because I know that's such a pain in the ass. So I decided, okay, let me just graduate. I'll have this degree as a backup. And I moved to New York thinking I would get a job teaching until I could figure something else out. And when I got here in the recession, like literally the beginning of the recession, They were on a hiring freeze, uh, New York State schools. So they weren't hiring for two years. So I had to think of what other skills I had. And I started freelancing. And I've been doing that ever since. (laughs) Honestly, like, it's been 11 years.
1: Wow. Which is crazy because it doesn't feel that long. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up?
0: I was just talking to my brother about this. I wanted to be a secretary. I, and honestly, like, I think I did achieve that. I have been... An executive assistant. You know how every writer has like their day job. Totally. And then yeah. So I was a receptionist at car dealerships. I worked at an assisted living home. I have I have been working since I was 16 yeah. years old, and I've always done I've always organized other people's lives, which yeah. is so funny because my life is <laughs> I think so disorganized. You but, seem very organized. Oh, thank you. As long as that's the impression people get, <laughs> that's fine. But yeah, I I loved making lists. I loved. Really, like scheduling out my day di- i have I think I'm probably in fourth or fifth grade, and I have this notebook where it's like eight a m wake up It's so oh ridiculous God, like who's so keeping me cute. accountable to these things? I don't know, but I wanted to be a secretary, and I think that in some ways I am because i I very much am an entrepreneur, I own my own business, I teach writing on my own, and so that is like a whole juggling act in itself, so. I guess I'm my own secretary. Yeah, you <laughs> totally are. Happened? You're running
1: your life and yeah. your son's life and managing. Managing being a person is so a hard. lot. I've so been thinking hard. about this a lot when I get really frustrated when I have to spend like an hour dealing with something with like my bank or insurance or something. And then I think that it's frustrating. It's taking me away from my work time. But if I was someone who had like a nine-to-five job, they would probably have to do that at their desk during exactly. the work day anyway because that stuff's only open from that time. I know. It's so frustrating. I mean, the
0: amount of time that I have spent on hold, especially like about to move, right? Like the amount of time I've spent on hold with like my cable company and my yeah. cell phone. It's just like, oh, why don't I have someone else to do this? And then I realize I do have someone else to do this. I have an assistant, but I, I cannot let go of control. It's so weird. I know that's like a strange thing. I have a person who I pay to make my life easier and like take away these things that I don't want to do. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, I guess it's because I have been an assistant. Yeah. So I have this mindset where it's like when I was someone's assistant, if they asked me to go get their dry cleaning, I'd be like, they can do that themselves. Yeah. Like, it's just this point of, yeah. of I don't want to get too high and mighty, where I can't take care of my own, you know, chores. Those little things that everybody yeah. has to do. I think that's what keeps people
1: grounded. I know it's such an interesting thing, though, because it's it's your time. And you're trying to figure out how to. It take, it's a very different skill set. We can. I want to get into this more too of creativity and admin stuff. And for me, it's really hard to switch between the two. Like mm-hmm. if I'm going from, and so your writing brain and your teaching brain is probably very different, even than your editing brain, maybe than your yeah. writing brain and teaching, then writing and definitely like calling the cables, <laughs> writing, you know, or like yeah. parenting, like you're constantly switching roles and wearing so many hats that, yeah. It, and outsourcing takes work too, because then you have to, sometimes I'm just like, it's just going to be quicker if I just do this thing. Do it yourself, yeah. Or I will outsource it and just realize that it would have been quicker if I just would have done it. So it's I know. Just, it's I feel hard. the same
0: way, but it's also like, well, I mean, as far as wearing different hats, I feel like there's a lot of connected tissue when it comes to teaching and writing and editing. So I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. I, right now, I have a small group of, um, they're just my group coaching Students. I don't even like to call them students because they're just amazing women and writers. Mm-hmm. So let's call them my writers that I work with.
1: Yeah.
0: I edit probably 120 pages a week of just their work because they're all working on books, they're all working on essays, they're working on big projects. And it, I mean, the more I edit other people's work, the better I edit my own work. Mm. So I think of it as. Like, even if I'm editing someone else, I think, okay, this is actually going to be useful for me whenever my pages are on the table. Yeah, I think of it as practice. And then when it comes to teaching, I'm still very much—I don't know if you've noticed this because you've been in class with me, but yeah. I go into flow when I'm teaching, so I have no idea what I said. I actually had one of my—I taught a workshop at the Wing last two months ago, and one of the women in there, I was—I noticed she took amazing notes. And so at the end of the class, I was like, can I have those? Just copy them for me. I want to see what I said or what you got from what I said. And it was fascinating. I was like, this is great advice. I have no recollection of giving it, but it was just like because you're, when you're in it and you're actually not worried about what you're saying or how it's presented yeah. or how it's perceived, you can kind of just speak the truth a little bit more. Totally. Yeah. So I think that there are, all of those three things are connected. And then as far as, as far as the minutiae of life, all of that teaches you patience, right? Like, yeah. Which is a required thing for, I think, being a human and being an artist, especially. Like, you have to have patience. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> Talk about that a little bit of how, in terms of how you've learned patience and surrendering and focus more on that than control and yeah. trying to make everything make things happen rather than let things happen in yeah. your life?
0: Oh, that's, that's okay. So that's a great question. And we were just talking, Rima and I were just talking about that this morning. When a person operates from a place of need, like I need to totally. be published, I need a book deal, I need da, da, da All of that is, I think, you know, I talk about this a lot, but like outsourcing your value rather than knowing exactly what you're worth and exactly what your story is worth and exactly what you're capable of, you're waiting for somebody else to tell you. Your story's good. You are a good writer. You are talented enough to have a book deal. Like all of that is external. So when you're operating from that place where you need the external validation, oh my God, it's so hard to be patient because you want it now. You actually need to have someone give you that boost because if you can't give it to yourself, I mean, it's kind of like you're treading water. So I, for a lot of years, was operating from that place of like, I just want a byline. I want someone to pay me for my work. I want to know that I'm not crazy, or at least not delusional as far as what I think I'm capable of as a writer. But then, as I got older, and I think it's a, I think it's a matter of getting older and letting go of ego, mm-hmm. which is really hard. But- as I got older and as I started to let go of this idea of who I thought I was or who I should become or blah, 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 I really grasped onto this. My agent, actually, she said, if the door doesn't open, it's not your door. And it was just so basic and simple that it was it was something that I I just took that statement and I tattooed it on my brain. And for the last number of years, it's like, if something doesn't happen for me, it's not for me. And that's okay. Like, rather than trying to manipulate things and force things and push yourselves into rooms that you don't belong in. Oh my God. Once you realize like, okay, if it's meant for me, it's meant for me and nothing can change that. It changed my entire approach to my artistic life because I don't know. I don't know if anyone's keeping track, but if you actually look at the trajectory of my career, I stopped trying so hard about three years ago and that was the part that was the point where everything started to unfold for me cuz i was no longer trying to manipulate it and force yeah. it and it was just like what is mine is mine and yeah. no one can take that away from me and i think that so often people don't realize that when they think they're just when they think that things are not happening like they're not getting a job offer they're not getting a contract or a byline or this or that it doesn't mean that nothing is happening you're still living every single day so your experience is going to be valuable. And also the distance that you're creating between the experiences you're going to write about and the actual writing about them, that buffer is so necessary. And I don't I don't think people give that enough credit. So I don't even know if it's about patience or just learning to appreciate the time in between opportunities and yeah. knowing that it has a purpose.
1: Yeah, another podcast guest, Lacey Phillips, said... On my podcast, that she calls that the magic dark, mm. that in between time. I love that. Because it can feel so horrible, but it's really things are happening energetically, and yeah. you know, like you're living a life worth commenting on, yeah. you know? And I think that metaphor is so true to life as it is to writing and work and it's true with relationships like that needy energy is so unattractive
0: oh my gosh it's and so unattractive It's and you hard, can sense it like yeah. a mile away yeah
1: yeah what do you think how did that change for you three years ago where you decided to let go and not
0: oh man okay so a lot of things have happened over the last many years but three years ago um I think I just got to a place where everything that I had done wasn't working. <laughs> like you know when you realize like, oh maybe I'm the problem. Yeah. Actually, I think it was probably coincided around the time I read this book by. Oh dang, I'm gonna mess up her name. Lauren Xander. Lauren Zander. She did
1: the podcast Stop! when the book came out. Yeah, she was
0: amazing. She wrote a book called Maybe It's You. Yeah, yeah, and it was just like, huh, interesting. Never considered that possibility where. I am the reason that these things aren't working. I am the reason that this relationship, this job, this whatever, that it's all kind of going haywire. And I think that that scares people, right? If you say to someone like, oh, you're the common denominator. You are the actual problem. Yeah. I think it scares people to, that they feel so much responsibility. And then they feel like shame or guilt. It doesn't
1: feel good in the moment. No. It's very uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) It's a
0: very uncomfortable truth. But if you can sit in that discomfort for a minute, you will realize like, oh, hey, okay, if I am the problem, I'm also the solution. Yeah. If all of this turmoil starts with me, then all of it also ends with me. I Like you're the one who's holding the reins. Mm-hmm. So for me, reading that book and also coming to a point in my life where everything I wanted seemed to be getting further and further out of my reach, I had to really reevaluate. And I think that's what happens when you get to that, When you just get to a place where shit's not going well, (laughs) you're kind of just like, okay, let's regroup and think of a different, yeah, let's think of a different strategy. And so I started to look inward and it was really ugly. It was really ugly to look and see what I had been trying to outrun for years and years, which doesn't go anywhere. It's so funny. It's like, you know, (laughs) you're just like trying to outrun all of this stuff, all of this pain, all of this trauma, this dark. And then when you are breathless and you stop and you realize like, oh, it's in my backpack. Like it's all there with me. I've been carrying it the entire way. You feel a little bit silly. And then, I mean, for me, I just started to go through like, really go through everything that I'd been carrying and saying, do you belong here now? Like you served a purpose back there three miles ago, seven miles ago, 12 miles ago, but do you serve a purpose now? And the answer was like, no, I've just been lugging around all of this stuff because I've had it because I thought I needed it. So once I started to really go inward, I, it was not overnight. This has been like, you're seeing the, the end of that process where I know that everything in my life right now, my relationships, my people, the things I spend my time on, all of those things serve a purpose. And that feels so much lighter.
1: Yeah. Right? I feel like I'm in that right now. Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable, but like you said, also empowering because it feels like it's in your control to change yeah. and that feels good. What would you say to someone going into that, that period of life?
0: Oh. You know what I do a lot of, and I know that these were kind of all over the place and and had their period of being viral, but these letters to your younger self, Mm -hmm. and I mean like a a year younger self, you know, or just looking at the past version of you with empathy, that has helped me significantly, tremendously by just looking at who I was and doing, like, that girl was doing the best that she could with what she knew, you know, which unfortunately was not a whole lot back yeah. then. And so what I would say to somebody who's just going into it is like, <laughs> hang on. Because if you're, if you stay in it, it's not going to be comfortable. The reason that people don't change is because change is hard. It's painful. Yeah. It's messy. It's messy. I mean, yeah. like no one wants to go through their life and create an inventory of where they went wrong and what patterns they're repeating and what they are going to do correctly next time. Like that does not sound like fun, especially if you strip away all of the things we use to cope, cope, all of our coping mechanisms, Distract, right? Yeah. Oh my God. If you remove those things while you're on that journey. So, which is, was a decision that I made three years ago or more recently, all of them in the last couple of years, but Was like, okay, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to go into the dark, like the dark, dark, I can't be self-harming in any way. I cannot be drinking. (laughs) Bless you. (laughs) She's allergic to truth. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) But it's like I couldn't be continuing the patterns of self-harm in like, for me, it was alcohol and just treating my body badly. You know what I mean? I was making my body pay for the mistakes of men that had hurt me in the past. And that feels really shitty. So I stopped doing all of that. I stopped sleeping with people. I stopped dating. I stopped drinking. And first of all, that freed up so much time. Yeah. I had no idea how much of a time suck all of those things were. But I mean, over that period, I dove into my past. And when I came out on the other side, I had a very firm understanding of who I was without all of the narrative. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's hard to strip those.
1: What was a moment in your writing or in your career where you felt like you were really proud of or you got the validation that you were looking for that was most exciting?
0: What was a moment in my career that I was most proud of or that
1: really like yeah, I it felt- was kind of like, okay, now I've like, this
0: is- Dang. You know, it's so funny because I feel like any- I feel like all people have this, but usually creative people have this moving target of what success looks like. And when I was younger and probably like in my twenties, when I was starting out writing and I just sending out my first pieces into the world to see if anybody thought I, they were worth anything. I would have said that if somebody pays me for this, then okay, I've made it right. Like someone Mm -hmm. paid me for a thing that I made. That was huge. And then as it got, as I grew as an artist and a woman, it started to become higher stakes. So I didn't just want a byline. I wanted the byline. Mm-hmm. I wanted the coveted page space. I wanted a following. I wanted a readership. And all of that was coming from ego, right? All of it was just like a little girl trying trying to become a version of herself And really, like, wanting people to like me. Totally. Which, hi. Like, welcome to being a human. (laughs) wanting to be seen. Yeah, wanting to be seen. And it wasn't necessarily wanting to be seen. It was wanting to be seen a certain way. Mm. Maybe not authentically, but just wanting to be seen a certain curated way. And so the older I got, the more that stuff started to just shed. And I wanted something deeper. I wanted to make a connection with people. And— I mean, you can see that over the, the shift of my writing where I stopped trying to be someone and I start trying to connect with someone. And that was like a huge shift in my career. But the Modern Love piece was honestly like, oh man, it was so good for so many reasons. So prior to that, I had spent a decade putting things out into the world. And when you put things out into the world, the world responds and sometimes it's not so nice. And that was hard as like a young writer to to be vulnerable and to be open and then have people be like, who cares? (laughs) It's like everyone's greatest nightmare. And so the Modern Love piece, it is the only thing to date that has had a 100% positive response. And I read every single response. And I don't mean comments because I don't believe in comments and I refuse to acknowledge them. But emails, like if someone goes out of their way to contact me, I read it and I I respond as quickly as, as I can. But every response was like, it was the validation of your writing matters to somebody other than you. Oh, that's like, that is such a good feeling. It's something that I wish every writer gets to experience that at some point because it really changed my I think it changed my career in the sense of before that point, I wanted to only write. I did not want to teach. I did not want to edit. I wanted to write and that was it. And then after that piece came out and I had so much feedback from people who just had stories, it was like, thank you for your vulnerability. And now here's my vulnerability. And it was beautiful and it was moving and it was painful to read all of that. And then out of, Somewhere inside of me was just this desire to help people tell their stories. And I didn't realize how great that would feel until it started to happen. And I mean, so moments of pride in my career have been the Modern Love and then the first class that I launched on my own, which was like, I think if anyone ever comes to a point in their career or their life where someone is willing to pay them money to do something that they love to do— that feels like the ultimate success for, I mean, right? Like we're doing it right now. So it's kind of amazing. Yeah.
1: I want to have that moment as a writer that yeah. you talked about, like that just makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful. And I I do relate a little bit of like something happening in your career that propels you and kind of gives you a confidence. And maybe it is from ego a little bit, but it can, it's kind of the boost you need until you can believe in yourself yeah. on your own. Like when I got my book deal, I was really unattached to that happening and then when it did, I was like, oh, I guess I should keep going at all this stuff I'm yeah. doing on the side and I'm really happy that that happened just so I probably would have stopped or would have like blocked myself. So, yeah. not everybody needs something like getting published in Modern Love or getting something but you need like somebody to believe in you or somebody to, because I'm not one of those people who believes in myself you yeah. know, I don't really understand those people <laughs> but, um, but anyways, so I, I relate to that in like a, in a little way and, I think I know what you mean about teaching a class and you're I look at you as this you're so good at it and I'm so happy that you do it but you're kind of like a doula or a midwife to yeah, people's stories. I love that. And I think that's that has to be really inspiring too and I I help other people start podcasts now and at first it was just like this is just a thing I do because I can do it mm-hmm. but then and I'm sure you've related to this when you see your students' work published but seeing people's podcasts out and knowing that I helped a very small part of helping that happen yeah. is pretty cool, you know? It's
0: amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the right words to describe that, but when, I mean, I guess it's interesting because I I went to grad school, right? I, had an, I got my MFA at Columbia. And when I was in that program and in that environment, if someone succeeded, there was no applause. There was a lot of there was a lot of conversations happening behind that person's back, and there was, there was just like trying to minimize somebody else's success because when you're when you're coming from a place of scarcity, it feels like that success has been taken away from you somehow. Um, so I didn't experience that in grad school at all, but out in the world now that I'm teaching, and every single time any of my any of my writers publish anything, I am over the moon. And I. the other thing is that I never, ever say who my students are or who's taking a class with me because 90% of the work is theirs. Not more than that. It's their story, right? So all I've done is kind of just stripped away the things that feel important but aren't necessarily to that story. I've helped shape it, but I didn't help them live it. I didn't help them recover from it. So it's like to take credit for someone else's narrative feels like theft. And I see people do that a lot, and they must have their own reasons. <laughs> I don't know. But for me, I feel like it, it makes me feel good in my soul. It's just a confirmation of like, Jess, you're on your right path because you helped this person who maybe would have reached that point on their own. I don't know, but they didn't have to. Right. Yeah. I think it's definitely a solid feeling. And and off of what you were saying earlier about um, needing someone else to believe in you, man, I would have. I, mean, I was going to say I would have paid for that, but I did pay for that. I went to yeah. Columbia and I got an MFA. And and I I don't know if any of those genuine I believe in yous were tuition talking or if they were actual. If they were trying to actually empower me, but I think that. It's vital, especially in the creative field, because no one cares if you wake up in the morning and do what you do. That is the sad truth. You have to care more than everyone else, right? And there's no one else pushing you out there. So for me, those people, the people who believed in me, they're super valuable to my life and to my career and to just who I am. But I always think of it in terms of, like, who was the first person who called you a writer? And, And sometimes it's after you start calling yourself a writer. But for me, my son's father was actually the first person to call me a writer, and he was introducing me to someone else. And I, I had never heard anyone say like, here's Jessica, she's a writer. Aww. And it was like, I mean, I wish I could have seen my face because it was such a moment where it was like, oh, you think so too? Like, of course, that's what I am. That's what I've always been. But to hear someone else, someone else that I love, that I yeah. respect say it was mind-blowing to me. And I think that Everyone should have that person, and I I have taught—since I started teaching on my own, I've taught over 300 women, and I am horrified at how few of them have that person. So I am like, I will be that person. When we think about doulas, when we think about birthing a story and and impacting somebody's creative life— I volunteer, like I'll be the person that says your story matters because, and it's not bullshit, and it's not giving you lip service. It's saying the truth that I think sometimes we're too scared to say to ourselves, right? It's yeah. Like, oh
1: my god, I, I <laughs> want to. No, I just I feel, I feel like I'm gonna cry because. Uh, it's so it's so true. And I feel like you came into my life when I really needed that person and you were that for me. And I remember walking out of the first day of our class and I think I told you this, but I had this English teacher in high school who was kind of the first person who made me feel like I was smart or I was mm. enough. And I walked into your class on this just like very emotional winter day, not even just kind of stumbled in. And I felt like you wanted me to be there and believed in me without even really saying those words. And it like kept me going this mm-hmm. winter and it was so, so. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> We're both going to be sitting here in tears. It wouldn't, wouldn't be the first time on uh, let it out. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just, it's such a beautiful thing to have that because I think when you, when you don't believe in yourself to have someone else who can hold that vision and you can kind of meet them there, mm. it's really crucial and critical and yeah, it, it's just anyway. I lo- I love that. that Thank so you much. for
0: sharing that. And honestly, I I hope that that is. Um, I don't know if we've talked. Have we talked about manifestation? Do we talk about? Okay, we, yes. We're going all know. the time. <laughs> so, in terms of that feeling yeah. that you had, I keep a manifestation journal, and I have for about two years. And it's so funny to look back at it because it starts with, like, a free cup of coffee. Like, I was starting real small just to see if this, yeah. like, magic would work. And I, it's that list started to grow. The pages started to fill in my wants and my desires became more significant and much harder to attain, I think. And so on there is, like, things that I have crossed off over the last number of years, which is a beautiful feeling. But one thing that is on there is exactly what you just said, which is… I'm not, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. But no, it's
1: okay. If this was like, yesterday, <laughs> I would have been in tears because I was on my period and crying everywhere. And, I, and I'm honestly surprised that I'm not crying I now. It. I think I just cried so much yesterday.
0: <laughs> but on that list um, of things that I wanted to bring into my life, I wrote, I want to walk out of a room, leaving people feeling more empowered than they felt when they walked in. And I was like, I don't know how in the hell I'm going to make people feel that, especially because there were, man, there were so many times where I didn't feel that. Like to create an empowering feeling when you don't feel empowered that day, damn, that's hard. But the reality is that if I can make you feel that way, It's like it's a it's like a dual gift, right? If I empower you, that empowers me. That gives that makes me feel like I am stepping into my purpose and doing what I'm here to do. So thank you for letting me know that I can cross that off the list. Because honestly, for years I've like I know that that's how I want people to feel whenever they leave a class or when they leave a room or they just leave a conversation with me. It's so what you do. Thank you.
1: No, I mean that I'm not buttering your bread. Like it, (laughs) it was this energy that you brought to the space of the class that we were in and now through, now you're someone who I consider a friend and mentor and what you said about not taking credit for people's work I admire so much and is so humble but man I think you should and <laughs> at least for me if I ever publish anything <laughs> that I work on with you I'm going to like tattoo all over it like a stamp like they put on like Getty <laughs> so Images like made by made by Jessica <laughs> Anyway, I just, I think the world of you and I I wrote this down to ask you about because you told us in class that you have a mentor who is someone I know, Sue Shapiro, and that relationship was really meaningful to you. So what do you think about the importance of mentorship and what was the greatest thing you learned from that relationship? Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay, so… Sue Shapiro came into my life when I was (laughs) 20—pregnant. I was 26. And she came in because I had been taking—I had taken a class at Media Bistro, I think. Anyway, the teacher there was like, oh, you know, you get along with my friend Sue Shapiro. So I ended up going to Sue's group and then was in her workshop for, like, two years. And— Okay. Sue is one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life where, and honestly, like I take that into my practice and into my classroom where it's like, here are all of the editors that I know. And now they're all of the editors that, you know, because I think that there's a lot of people that will hoard contacts in this industry because again, it's scarcity, right? It's like, if I give you my contact, then that takes away an opportunity for me. No, it doesn't. There's enough world, there's enough room in this world for everyone to have page space. I don't know why yeah. more people don't believe that.
1: Abundance breeds abundance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so she taught me that. If you have context, you need it's your responsibility as a creator to share them. And then holy shit, Sue is the person I learned to quickly edit from. She I would watch her, I would go into her living room, and it was like a two-hour workshop. And we'd do, we we'd like each reader for that night would read their piece out loud and she would just be over there like line editing while we went. And I was like, what is she doing over there? It's like magic. And she would just work so quickly. And then I realized that that is a, that's what happens when you practice, right? You just get better and faster at what you want to do. Great period.
1: Yeah. I know. It's oh <laughs> something that Jess does when she edits, she'll just write great period, which I didn't take as as harsh, but I'm glad you did mention that That that's because so, I'm someone who needs like lots of exclamation points and to know I'm okay. <laughs> oh
0: my God. It's so funny. So I have all of these beautiful writers that I work with and they're writing about like death and trauma and body dysmorphia and all of these painful things. But if I read an amazing sentence that like moves me, I will just think <laughs> the word, oh, this is great. But on paper, it just says, great, all lowercase, maybe one capital misplaced. And it's no punctuation. So it's really weird to see a sentence like, and that was the night my father died. And then in the side, I'm like, great. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there's no tone. A lot of room for for
1: miscommunication there. (laughs) Like texting.
0: Yeah. But I was going to say my other, um, another woman who has been a mentor to me, to my soul, and to my, um, you know, like when you say people seeing things in you that you don't yet see yourself. That has been Elaine Welteroth, who she— I met her when she was the beauty the beauty editor at Teen Vogue, and then she was the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, and now she is running the world. So she's, like, on she's this so cool. career path yeah. that is so amazing. And I remember sitting in a room with her, and she was just, like, the way that she would speak to me as an equal— and I had never—I had worked on a different side of the same industry, where I was freelance, and she had always been— on staff with the same magazines that we were working for. And she was really one of those people that empowered me. And I think that, you know, when you find people like that, you connect with them and you remember them. And then for the rest of your journey, you'll remember things that they said that didn't really make sense or have have an impact when they said it. But then suddenly one day it's like, oh, that's what she meant. That's what she meant. So, yeah, she's been a real— um, she's been really— uh, as far as my process, she's been the person who has helped guide me into how do I lead up the people around me or how do I lift up the people around me, you know? Yeah. She's been really amazing with that.
1: You, We've talked about this a little bit before we are recording, but for me, the biggest barrier to writing is time and making the time to sit down and do it. And you really helped, helped me with this in class when you just said, you know, we're all busy, carve out the time, even if it's stolen away packets of time, how do you do that? And, you know, was becoming a mom something that helped you develop that skill?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So time management is tricky for everyone. And Marie Forleo, who I love so much, she says, if you want something, you'll make it happen. And if you don't really want it, you'll make excuses. And I always find that the people who are the busiest people are often the ones who, who you know, they say they're so busy, but yet they actually do want to write. They do want this thing that they're going for. So for me, if you've ever taken a class with me, I'm, my first suggestion is like, remove something for the next four weeks. If you go to yoga every day, remove it for four weeks. It's not going to destroy you (laughs) like whatever. And it frees up an hour of your time or wake up earlier. If I can't do that, that is just something I tell people. I don't (laughs) actually do that in my own life. So as far as making time in my own schedule, I, you know, we talked about it earlier, which is, I think people have to first let go of this idea of in order for me to write, and in order for me to be a writer, I have to have an oak desk, <laughs> step one. And then I have to have tea, and then I have to set the, the timer. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's not your writing life is not going to look like you think it's going to look. You actually have to steal pockets of time where, I mean, I have written in every form of transportation that exists. I've written on the subway. I bring my life. La- if you see me out in the wild in New York City, you see me with my laptop. I carry it in my book bag. And it goes everywhere because if I'm stuck in traffic and I'm in the back of an Uber, I'm going to be writing. And I think that once you get once you get more and more rehearsed at this, kind of just dropping into creativity, mm-hmm. the easier it becomes. So again, it is a practice, right? When you're first starting out, it's really hard to go from like, you know, Jessica wandering through the day, whatever, and then the mindset of like, Jessica writing this really deep essay about trauma. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's hard to just drop into that, but you just have to practice it. And again, one of the things that I do in class is I have you guys do in-class writing exercises, which I hated so much because they felt weird and put people on the spot but the only reason i do them is cuz i want people to see how much they can write in 15 minutes. Mm. 15 yeah. minutes will make such my entire 300 page book was written in 15 minute increments throughout the day. Yeah. I mean, you don't get in real life you don't get, you know, a room of your own, a room of one's own with a 4 hour window yeah. to just think your thoughts. Like no, you have to get it out in your head. And i know that a lot of writers also will do a lot of the writing in their brain. And then when they can kind of sit down at the computer and then just download it, you know? Totally.
1: Yeah. It's really helpful. Uh, do you find—I feel like for me, I always need to have a project going or something open because it's that, where should I start? That takes way longer than, like, getting into something. Yeah. And so I feel like, for me, if I have something that I'm working on that I know this is a thing, I would always kind of—I would do this when I was working on an essay or whatever I'm working on. i will kind of mark it and be like, okay— Tomorrow when I begin again, I'm starting here. Do you do that for yourself? Yeah. I actually
0: always start—I always start writing by editing the last page I wrote. That, to me, is like—it's almost like giving yourself a running start. Yeah. Yeah. It feels so good because it's like, okay, even if the writing is not great, the the last page that you wrote— even if the writing isn't solid, it feels better to make writing better. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It feels really empowering. It's like, okay, this wasn't great, but I'm making it better. And then I also have a place where I can start from. Yeah. So I think that's a great practice to have. I think the one of the scariest things as a writer is staring at a blank page and having just an idea. And I always, always recommend just start in scene. And it's… The reality is, like, that probably won't stay as your beginning, but at least it'll get—it'll drop—it'll give your brain the signal to drop into that memory, that moment, that whatever. So it seems less daunting, as opposed to if you start writing, like, oh, my God, if you start writing with—, with I don't know, with this idea of, like, I have to have these big, (laughs) profound thoughts. Like, that's so intimidating to me. Yeah. I can't write profound thoughts on command, but I can definitely put us in a kitchen and tell you what we're eating. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's just one of the things that I do is I start editing before I start writing.
1: That's such a a good tip. I have, like, a million more— Minutia writing questions that I will save (laughs) to ask you privately in my mentorship with you rather than for everyone listening. But I think whether someone's a writer or not listening, that pocket of time you're stealing away can be applicable to any hobby you want to do, anything you've been wanting to do that you haven't made the time for. I think that's applicable. So you write a lot about love and relationships is writing cathartic for you and and how does writing help you? And then also, when you're writing about something that affects other people, how do you how do you manage that in your life?
0: Yeah, so um, I don't know if any of your listeners keep a journal, but I know you do. And it's so funny to look back at journals because if you really inspect them and like look through them as if it's research on you, I think that we are more or less the same now than the person we were five years ago, 10
1: years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. (laughs) It's so,
0: I don't know if it's it's like embarrassing or I'm proud of it. I don't know.
1: I was on an old computer last night and I read some journaling I had written from 2014 and I was like, oh my God, I still feel all of those feelings today.
0: Exactly. So it's like, you are who you are. Yeah. Um, we're stuck in here. (laughs) There's no changing this part. And so when it comes to writing about love and relationships, I've been writing about love long before I was ever even in love. I uh, opened up my 10th grade yearbook and it's so horrifying. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank God I don't have it in this apartment. It's something like it was on the second page and I wrote the letter of like the year. So it opens up the entire yearbook and the pull quote they have is first kiss, first love, first heartbreak. I had never lived any of those things, (laughs) but at that point I knew that other people were living those things. And so I wanted to like tap into my, what my audience was going through. And I wrote this like, so exaggerated, dramatic, like, oh my God, you would have thought that I was like Kate Winslet, the ship was going down. <laughs> like, I was so tortured. But then I'm like, Jessica, what were you going through at that point? Like, I had never even kissed a boy at that point. Nothing. So I've always been writing about love. I think that it is one of the most universal things. It's unfortunate that when people write about love, and specifically when women write about love and relationships, it gets dismissed And kind of thrown under this umbrella uh, as, like, navel-gazing and and self-indulgent. When in reality, love, to me, is the most universal connected thing we all have in common. So it's like, wait, this is the thing I'm tapping into. I'm pulling from my life, yes, because I know that you'll have an experience to match it. Even if it doesn't look exactly the same, we're tapping into the same emotion, the same experience. So— that's my, like, comfort zone. I can write about love or the lack of love or losing love, familial love, romantic love, friendship love, all day long. And I intend to for the rest of my life. There is no stopping me.
1: <laughs> Judging well, by my 10th grade yearbook. cool about don't lose your train of thought. Yeah. But I just, what made me think of this is I, as I said earlier, I was very emotional yesterday. Partly because of my period. Who knows? But I was crying walking down the street, which is not a rare occurrence for me. But I was feeling really <laughs> sad and the only thing that comforted me in that moment was like, this is a feeling that so many, it feels so isolating and I feel so lonely right now, but this is a feeling that so many people have felt and so many people have gone through, even though in my mind it felt like I was the only one that's ever felt it in the world. And that's why I feel like it's so comforting for me to read modern love and to read memoir and to have these sorts of conversations, you know, what I call soft stories telling these Types of vulnerable things. And yeah. anyway, go on. I just thought no, that. No, I
0: love that. I think you're absolutely right. I think that it, when you're experiencing that, whatever that is, right, the thing that's causing you pain or internal turmoil, I think that it feels really isolating. And, and to me, I read so that I can connect with someone else, so that I can read my thoughts in someone else's words. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, sometimes when you're reading a book and you're like, yes, that is how I yes. felt. That is exactly how I felt. And I could never—because you're in it. Yeah. So you don't have, you can't, like, put it in words. Yeah. You're literally it drowning it. Yeah, it articulates you. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And, you know, it, it is. It's like—love uh, is one of the—it's one of the least unique things. Every person who's ever had a baby thinks that they're the first—like, they feel like they're the first and only person ever go yeah. through it because it's so special. And it never becomes less special. Right. Like even in your own life, when you fall in love with somebody new, it feels just as remarkable as the first, second, third, fourth, however many times you've done it. So, I mean, I love that. But as far as writing about other people who exist in the world, who have a very different memory than I do, who have a very different understanding of the past than I might, it's tricky. And I try to do it with respect. I try to do it with respect to their stories, and I try to do it with some level of anonymity for them, if that's possible. So I just wrote an entire book that is very much about my family. And my mother is like, Jessica, what are you going to say about me? And I'm like, what do you think I am? Like, I'm not (laughs) some monster who's going to just like scream out accusations to the world. Um, But I think that it is very scary to be a subject in someone's story and I feel like I say this in class all the time, but you as a writer have a responsibility to be careful with other people's characters. Like, that's your job. You don't, just because you have the pen does not mean that you can abuse that power. And so many people are writing about abuses of power while abusing that power. So I'm, it's like a mind spin. But when I'm writing about other people, I think when they read this, Will they feel seen? That's it. And sometimes it's going to be ugly what they see, but will they feel seen? You know, not exposed. That's very different. I never want anyone that I write about to feel exposed or betrayed um, because that's not what I want to use my creativity for. But yeah, will they feel seen? And it's a hard thing to do, but I I have a sense that if you keep
1: doing it, it gets easier?
0: (laughs) Question mark? I don't know. We'll see.
1: Well, you do it well. Thank you. Specifically, I want to talk a little bit more about your Modern Love piece, which centers on your relationship with your brother. Can you talk about writing that essay and what that experience was like for you? Yeah. Wow. So
0: the logistics of getting that essay out into the world, I'll talk about that because I think it's really interesting. I loved Modern Love for as long as I've known about it, right? Years and years I'd been reading the column. And I knew that I wanted to publish a story in the column. And I had submitted a different essay to the column and it was rejected. And anyone who has done that process and been rejected knows that feeling where it's like, oh no, my story is not valuable. He doesn't want it. So it's really like ego bruising. Um, But I was thankfully at a point in my life where it was like, okay, that door is not for you. It's not for this story. And then I had the opportunity to take a class with Dan Jones, who just happened to be teaching his first modern—first and maybe only modern love class at Columbia while I was there. So I went to go register for the class, and it was full, and I was like, I don't care. (laughs) I definitely snuck in and stayed. I don't even know if it's on my transcript. It doesn't matter because I was in that class.
1: Probably the most— valuable class you took. Yeah, (laughs) it was
0: honestly the most valuable class. And uh, I would say he's one of the most generous um, professors that I've ever had and one of the most generous editors that I've worked with. So I went into that class thinking, I want to write A Modern Love. And I have been so blessed in my life when it comes to romantic love. I know that some people are going to look at that and be like, aren't you divorced? But yeah, that's the voice I give those people. (laughs) I have been so blessed when it comes to romantic love because I have been loved. Like, I have felt such tremendous love from such good men in my life. And that is not something that I take for granted or that I feel should be dismissed. So I was thinking, I'll write about one of those beautiful loves. But then I thought, oh, I know. That's just so typical, and my story doesn't stand out. And I'd had this story that I'd been living— and living through and dealing with for years, but i never had once written down a single word about it. So I thought, okay, let me just challenge myself and see if I could write about not romantic love, but fam- uh, family, siblinghood love. And so that is what I took to class. And I was so scared about telling that story because one, how much of it is my story to tell? That was like a thing that I have been battling with for the last number of years because there's a lot of my story that was not on the Modern Love page that I had to edit out because I, and I think if you ever worked with me, you know that I have this note, which is like, this is important, but it's not, it doesn't belong right here, right? It's like, don't delete it, but just remove it from this page. (laughs) So I battled with how much of this story is mine to tell I battled with, you know, am
1: I— We should say it's a story about something that happens to your brother, and we'll link to yeah, the beautiful yeah. essay, but
0: well, just to quickly that's... summarize, um, it's— So this, the essay is about my brother and I, when we were growing up, we were very, very close, and when he was 15 and I was 13, he watched a little boy who was our, our cousin but not really cousin, you know, those, those relatives that are—they feel like blood. So he watched our cousin get hit by a car and was killed— And it was something that we never talked about in our family. And it was uh, a trauma that needed to be dealt with. It needed to be talked about. It needed to be shared. It needed to be acknowledged. And instead, my family did what a lot of families do, which is we just swept it under the rug and thought, okay, it's done. It's over. If If we pretend it didn't happen, it's not necessarily pretend it didn't happen. But if we don't talk about it, then it'll go away. And so that ended up creating a divide in our siblinghood, in our relationship. So when I wrote that essay, I was in contact with him and I said, hey, I'm writing about your story. I'm writing about Jonathan. I'm writing about what happened. In my family, we don't say the thing. We say what happened, right? Like the actual words, I would say, do you ever think about what happened to Jonathan? Do you ever think about what happened in May? The anniversary actually just passed 20 years. But I told my brother that I was writing it, and he knows that I'm a writer, and he knows that, that my writing is very personal. And if he had at any point said, absolutely not, that's not your story to tell, I would have backed away and never, ever tried to write it. But because I think the silence was so profound in our family that anyone willing to lift up that lid just a little bit was, was appealing I think was appealing for him. So I shared with him like my whole process while I was writing it. He knew when I called the driver, he knew the next day. I was very transparent about the entire thing. And then it's different to like be writing an essay and then, you know, the day that it gets published, it's, it makes it very real in a way that you can't take back. So I felt ready and he had read the essay before and And I said, if you want me to take out anything or change anything, even if it seems minor, because this is, you know, this is his, very much his story. It's a shared history. And um, he gave me the go-ahead and it came out and it was so sweet because he didn't read it online. He went and like bought the, I know he went and bought the, um, the actual paper that Sunday and the response, I think, was something that neither one of us expected. And I forwarded him every single email that I got from somebody who identified with his situation, from somebody who identified with the driver's situation, from somebody who identified with mine. I sent him every single email. And it was was just amazing because he—the conversations we had after, he felt really supported and really seen. And that, to me, was like, okay— Good job. Like you did your job as a writer, as a sister, as a protector of your family. Like this is good. Keep moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a bonding experience for you and him? Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you remove in any relationship, I think this is true. Once you remove the elephant in the room, it's it's kind of just nice to exist in all of that space yeah. together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it feels so tight and claustrophobic when you are there with the other person and this big totally. elephant. You're like, I can't move in this. I yeah. can't exist in this. And once you remove it and it's no longer an unspoken thing, it frees, you, it frees you both in your relationship. Yeah. Yeah, the whole experience was, and I told him at this point, so I'm I'm working on a children's book and my brother's an amazing artist. And I was like, You have to illustrate this book with me. This is not a this is not my request. This is me telling you if I write a children's book, you have to illustrate it. And I think him watching me pursue things that I did not think were in within my reach and then achieving them has made it more a realistic possibility for him to do the same. Yeah, you're an expander for him. Yeah. And and I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. To not have that, to never see somebody close to you or someone that you know reach for things that are really far away, yeah. um, and then actually achieve them, I think it's it's amazing when you when you can witness that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like what we were talking about before. This person who I think you would really love, Lacey Phillips. Do you know her? Mm-mm. She's done the podcast, but she has the she's the one that said the magic dark, and I she has this that. term expander for manifestation where you can't achieve things. That you don't believe are possible, that you c- can't see someone doing, that you can yeah. see yourself in. So if you see someone doing it, that is a different race than you or yeah. has more money than you, you're like, okay, that they can do that, but I can't. They're but if you qualifiers. see someone, yeah. yeah, who's your sibling do it, that's the definition of an expander. And it was so cool to see you write about sibling love, which it made me sad in a way that I'm an only child and yeah. something <laughs> I'll never experience. Um, but it was, it was really lovely and yeah, I am just so happy that that, that essay exists. And, and I was thinking too about going back to mentorship and why you're, cause I was thinking about that, how Dan was that to you and another expander and thinking about why it feels so, why he teaches, why you teach. And I had someone on the podcast, she's doing this one woman show called accidentally brave. And oh, that's she so was that's such about, a good title. Yeah. it's a, you I'll tell you about it after it's the one coming out this week, but She's really great, and she was, she. was the show is centered around a mentor that she had in her life and mm-hmm. how this person is a celebrity. She doesn't reveal who it is, but she doesn't want for anything in, like, the material world. So when Maddie asked her, how can I repay you, she said, pass it on. Mm-hmm. And so she's I doing this one-woman show. And the reality is I believe that that person, that mentor of Maddie's, got just as much from it as Maddie did mm-hmm. because I believe, and I know you feel the same, from your actions that we're wired for unity we're wired for connection absolutely. and it helps us it makes us feel less alone and it feels really good to help another person even and when it's inconvenient too yeah especially you know? when it gets you out of your head that's i think why motherhood is so oh my helpful God. <laughs> to people <laughs> yeah as a learning tool <laughs> no
0: i think you're absolutely right and i mean the reality is that i think that sometimes people choose mentors solely based on what they've achieved and nothing else. And that's really dangerous because if you're choosing a mentor because they have, you know, if you want to write a book, you choose a mentor who has a book deal. You want to be a lawyer, you find somebody who has their own practice. That's one element of a good mentor. You want to find a mentor who is not insecure in what they have and what they have to offer. Because if you find a mentor who is insecure and who's operating from a place of scarcity, they will cause so much damage to your vulnerability. Your vulnerability will be taken advantage of. I think that there's a lot of people who have had unhelpful experiences with mentors where, you know, you're a mentee, so you're like, what can you teach me? What wisdom can you impart? And if you're dealing with somebody who is not... (laughs) As, as a friend of mine would say, who's not right in their soul, they will take advantage of that power. Yeah. So you can usually tell that you've picked the wrong mentor when you walk away from them feeling really shitty.
1: Well, I also think mentorship is two-sided. Like yeah. I think you want to help, as a mentee, want to help your mentor yeah. in any way that you can. And that's how a relationship works. Any relationship should be two-sided. It's not, Absolutely. you know, this for this. I think any good relationship is collaboration and and connection. Absolutely. And I've also had those types of, I have, I have another mentor. I'll, I'll tell you the detours, the detours <laughs> that sort of is the details later, but it, it felt not good. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, yeah, anyway. Okay. I'm getting anxious about the time because I could talk I to you forever. Time it is. We're <laughs> going to have to do the rest as like somewhat quick fire questions. Okay. Cause I have so much. I want to ask you and we're not even to the quick fire questions Stop. yet, but it's going to, it's going to work. Um, okay, so you wrote about nostalgia recently, and this line really stuck with me about something that you wrote. You said, I get attached to things, to people, to ideas, and permanence has always been a bit of a heartbreaker for me. I have shuffled crates of books around the world, rolled up t-shirts that don't even fit simply because someone I love once wore it. Hmm. so beautiful. <laughs> I and love when I my own words. gives people <laughs> wow, an so idea good. <laughs> of your writing, but… Can you talk a little bit about what you learned about moving on and letting go? I'm really, really bad at it, yeah. so anything you can learn, or anything <laughs> you can tell me? It's
0: hard. It's so if it hard. feels hard, you're doing it right. If it feels uncomfortable, you're doing it right. My ex-husband, who I love very much, he said, Jess, when you write a memoir that's about your life, like not your family, not a marriage, just about your Experience. It's going to be called the girl with nostalgia disease, <laughs> and I was like, "That is accurate." And also, I'm the most
1: nostalgic person.
0: It's insane. I mean, to the point of like, I've kept notes and post its from decades ago because somebody wrote a thing once that made me smile. Like, yeah. it's ridiculous. So I hold on to the past in every way. When it serves me, when it doesn't serve me, when. You know, whether it's pain or whether it's joy, I hold on to it simply because it happened, and that feels important to me. Um, I think it's—you know, not to, like, analyze myself, but I think it's very much connected to childhood. If you as a child did not feel like you had control over things, as an adult, you kind of overextend that control. You overextend, like, I'm going to keep all of these things because before I had to choose which things were important. So— how to let go when you're a nostalgic monster like me and you. (laughs) So I think um, once you acknowledge and accept the idea that choosing to hold on to something is creating a small prison for yourself, and it starts to feel like that. I'll talk about it in terms of family because that is what's the most present in my mind. I thought that I would have a family where it's like, you know, your, your paper doll family, the father, the mother, the dog, the kid, the house, everyone lives together. Very soon after I started a family, it did not look like that. And it did not feel like that. So rather than expanding my ideas of what could be, I doubled down and I was like, no, these are our barriers. This is our prison. We will all live here. (laughs) And it felt awful for everybody involved. Um, it's really scary to let go of an idea. It's really scary to let go of these shoulds that we have. I should be doing this. I should look like this. I should have this relationship. It's really scary to let go of that, especially if you don't have a replacement for it, right? And if you don't have like an idea to replace what your previous no longer working idea was. So one thing that really, really was necessary in my letting go process was writing down what I wanted the future to look like, even if I had never seen it before. So for me, I didn't want to be a divorced couple who passed their kid back and forth, who never spoke, who hated each other, who badmouthed each other. It was what I had seen yeah. from TV and people. and That's what other- I grew up with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not <and> great. <laughs> exactly. A lot of people have that experience, and it's all I knew. If We weren't going to be married and sharing a house and living together as a family. The only way I knew a family to exist, then we had to be this. And I didn't want that. So what did I want? Great question. Big question that I didn't have an answer to. So I sat there in the discomfort of plotting and planning what that would look like if I, if anything was available to me. What would it look like if I could create a family dynamic that felt good, that felt healthy, even if it didn't feel like what I thought it—or even if it didn't look like what I thought it was supposed to? And so I wrote down things like, you know, weekly family dinners, traveling together, being able to be in a room with each other without wanting to kill each other or sleep with each other. Like, all the very detailed, like, this is what I want. And when I was writing those things, I may as well have been writing down, like— unicorns, flying, (laughs) you know, (laughs) flying, whatever, because it seemed so impossible. But because I was creating, I was writing down the reality of what it could look like and then rereading it every single day and living in that moment of like, what if it could look like this? What if it could look like this? And then working toward that and like moving in that direction, even though I was like, I don't know how we're going to get there, but this is what I want, right? Like you, you don't necessarily know how you're going to get to the other side of it, but knowing what it might look like is really helpful. I will say, though, it is hard to let go of stuff. It's especially hard to let go of pain. I always tell my son this. The first three seconds you have, your whatever that reaction is after an event, that is real. That is your brain. That is a reaction that you cannot control. And after that, you're controlling it. So if you choose to continue staying in that pain, it's because you're making that choice. And again, it's that... It's like the good news and the bad news. Like, oh, damn it. I've been choosing this. And also, oh, I've been choosing this. So I can just choose to stop wanting to be in the pain. Choose to stop wanting to be. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just like the realization that you control your narrative, you— If you were the cause, or not the cause, because I feel like then we get into tricky territory. If you were the common denominator in your past, then you're also the common denominator in your future, you know? So to think of it more like, I don't know, think of it more like planning and plotting instead of losing something, right? Because it feels really hard to give something up. But if you're writing out and creating this masterpiece of what might come next, that feels a lot more fun than just like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Just letting go. Yeah,
1: it's like what they talk about, you know, if you're trying to eat healthier, yeah. focusing on what you are going to be eating and great things rather than something you're what not you can't eating. Have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or what you don't want to have. And you you touched on this a little bit. That's going to be that's so useful for me. I feel like I'm letting go of so much and I want to talk about moving, which is something I'm doing and mm-hmm. you're doing in a second, but you We'll, we're, we'll stay in this territory for a second because <laughs> you mentioned this already, but you write a lot about co-parenting and you've been really honest about the challenges of it. And I wrote down another line of yours that I loved. And you said, divorcing with a kid is a different kind of heartbreak, one that never fully heals because you're simultaneously looking into the face of your painful past and your uncertain future. It's oh, just such a good line. I loved it so much. And you know, I I would love to talk about heartbreak a little bit as you know from my writing. I'm experiencing my first heartbreak without a kid, without a marriage and man, it's emotionally bloody. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. So, can you talk about breakups and heartbreak and what's helped you with it? I would love to. It's like my
0: favorite topic, Great. heartbreak. <laughs> Absolutely. I I think that it is not hard to let go of a relationship that sucks and a relationship that hurts and a relationship that is dysfunctional. That is easy. It's really hard to let go of the hope that it was going to get better and it was going to change. And that person you fell in love with was going to reappear somehow at some point. And it's really hard to let go of what you thought your future was going to look like. I think that's the mourning part, is not the past. Nobody— suffers from walking out of a bad situation. Yeah. We suffer because we're letting go of the hope that that bad situation will repair somehow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> or like an okay situation, yeah. I think. It's easy and clear when it's like something was really hard or it was a trauma, but when it was just not working. And, yeah. it, and like there's a parallel universe where it could have worked. I oh my gosh. I feel like that's just incredibly painful. It is.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's like when you walk away from someone that you still love, oof that's hard. But the reality is that, oh my God, this has been the transformative—this has completely changed my whole life. The realization that I can love someone and I do not have to be in a relationship with them, that blew my mind because I thought, but I still love them. I still love them. That means we're supposed to be together. That means I'm supposed to keep trying. That means I'm supposed to stick with it and whatever, insert cliche here. But then I realized like, oh, no one's going to make me stop loving them. I can still love them from right here in this safe space that I'm creating for myself. And that's super important. I I think that we live in a culture that's really messed up because we're taught that you can only love one way. Why? Why is romantic love, why does it trump everything else? Right? I feel like it's, it's like the saddest part of a relationship ending is like you're losing that friendship. You're losing that person who has been for better or worse, a person that is significant in in your growth and in your life. And it goes from connected romantic togetherness to nothing. We don't even say hi in the street anymore. And that is brutal. (laughs) So, I mean, when it comes to heartache, I think the hardest part is letting go of what you thought was going to happen. And that It seems like it should be easier, right? Because it hasn't actually happened. But no, we spend so much time in our brains living in the future. Playing out
1: the what if, what could, all of the possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe especially people like us with our temperament of, I don't think, that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately is that I don't think everyone is like us Mm -hmm. in that sense that they do that as to the level that we do maybe. Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, I've been thinking a lot about this in my situation. Like I know this is easier for him than it is for me, just yeah. because I'm someone who feels things so deeply. And that's that's hard. I don't know.
0: Yeah. And you know what the reality is? A lot of people, a lot of people are not sincere. And a lot of people go out of their way to develop a thick skin. And I think if I haven't said this in our modern love class, I feel like I must have said this before because I think it a whole lot where people think that that having a thick skin is helpful to you. And as an artist and a creator and a writer, I think having thick skin is actually so detrimental to your creativity because when you have thick skin, you can't feel all of the beautiful things that need to be felt in writing. Right? So, yeah, some people will just allow themselves to grow, you know, kind of hard and develop this shell where nothing can hurt them, which is a really isolating place to be. And then other people will cope with whatever makes them stop feeling. I mean, there are, there's so many ways to fill that blank, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever way it is that you cope with loss or heartache or any kind of suffering or loneliness. If you remove all of that and just sit in the pain oh my God, that's where the growth happens, but no one wants to sit there. And the reality is like, because you are there, it's so powerful. It's so easy to walk across the street, go get a few drinks and stop feeling the the things you don't want to feel. It's so easy to just go start dating somebody else so you don't have to miss someone. Those are all temporary. Those don't actually cause growth. Those are just little band-aids. They don't actually do anything. So yeah, we're gonna feel things a lot harder than other people do. They're going to feel, they're gonna feel much more profound and they're going to feel inescapable at times. But I mean, one of the things that <laughs> I wrote down in like my middle school journal was I mean, nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent, right? Even the good, the bad, nothing is permanent. And that is something that I keep going back to time and again, which is like, even when it's painful, it will not always be like this. And I know that it feels like that when you're in it, but history shows that you have overcome painful things. History has shown that you got through the thing you didn't think you could get through. You did the thing you didn't think you could do. So it's like, look at your past. You can do hard things you already have.
1: Yeah. I think this one is so particularly rough for me because I haven't felt any, I haven't gotten through something like this before. So it's new mm-hmm. and next one I'll be better hopefully. But <laughs> but do you feel like going back to what we were talking about, about replacing what you're taking away with something good or something to look forward to? Mm-hmm. Was there anything you did during that time where you replaced it with something else or something or a change? Was there a move or something that yeah, I think I feel like this is why I'm moving yeah. because I heard someone said to me, you can't heal in the place that you got hurt. Like mm. you need to put yourself into a new environment. So yeah, thus moving. But was there anything that helped you in that sense? I think that's great advice. I've never heard that. I wish I had. But I do think that I every
0: move up until now has been me outrunning something. And if you're leaving a place For those of the reasons that I was, which was like, I'm going to outrun this pain, watch me. And then wherever you you go, there there you are. (laughs) Oh, God, exactly. (laughs) So for me, it wasn't necessarily a move. It was, and it wasn't even throwing myself into work because when I feel crushed and when I feel emotionally burdened, I really can't create. And I think maybe that's what it was. If my pain and my sadness was keeping me from creating, that felt so wrong because creating is one of the things that I live for. So, I mean, you know, like when you're so in it and you're so depressed, like, oh, I know that feeling. And I just didn't, I couldn't even like think about writing a story or interviewing somebody or doing this thing that I love so much. And so I wanted to minimize that time because I wanted to get back to doing the things that I loved. Another thing that I really— really rely on whenever I'm in it, whenever I'm like going through the shift or going through the loss. I don't know what people who don't have children do because I have grown, I have grown as a person the same time that I've grown into motherhood. And knowing that I have somebody watching me, watching how I deal with sadness, watching how I deal with loss, watching how I deal with opportunity, knowing that I have a little audience of one, that makes me really consider How am I reacting? And also, being a parent is like giving great advice every day that you should take, right? So (laughs) it's like when you talk about this is the most painful thing thus far, so you don't know the other end of it, the other side of it. When a child falls off their bicycle or they scrape their knee or their whatever, when they get hurt for the first time, that is the most physical pain they've ever been in. And every adult around them says, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And so there's immediately from childhood this internal conflict of, I don't feel okay, but everyone else is telling me I'm okay. Huh. Like, what does that mean? So I always think of it as like, that's like the first time that you're told to ignore what you feel inside or not to validate it. So when my son falls, it's not, you're okay, it's, are you okay? Check in with your body, check in with yourself. And I think that, in the same way we teach that to children, I think that we should do that with ourselves. If you're feeling pain, feel it. You know that you're not okay. You know that this feeling is not good. And at the same time, other people put a timeline on our healing, and healing does not pay attention to timelines. It will it will happen at its own pace. So for you, it might take three months. For another person, it might take three years. For another person, it might take so much longer because you don't know what losses are tied up in that one romantic loss? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> there's, there's no other answer other than you have to sit in it until it gets less painful, until you can stand in it, until you can maybe like tread in it, and then until you can walk out of it. Yeah. That's it.
1: I want you to just say it's gonna go away. You're it's okay. gonna go away, <laughs>
0: and you know what? It is. Nothing yeah. is permanent it is going to go away. There are things that I think every person listening, every person living, there are things that you go through. That's why they call it you go through them. Mm-hmm. Right? No one you don't get stuck in it. Yeah. You go through it. And there are moments where it's like I cannot even imagine how I'm going to get out of this. This is going to be like this forever. And that feeling is so real when you're in it. Oh my god, it is so yeah. real. But the reality is you go through it. You will overcome things you did not think you could ever overcome because that is what a human being does. That's what it is to be human. That's why it's so
1: damn hard. Yeah. Because you go through it. Oh my God. And it's also not linear too. Yeah. Like I'll have moments where I, like right now, I feel like pretty okay. Like yesterday I was crying. Later I'll probably, you know, like to <laughs> cry like, later. it's so, it's complicated and interesting. And I feel like I need—I'm glad this was recorded because I can listen uh, back to that whenever
0: <laughs> I want. But also I was going to say one of the things that that has allowed me in the past to get comfortable and be okay when you're in it and when, like, the, the entire world's yeah. crashing Ooh, around you I'm like, hey. is knowing that all of that serves a purpose. And I know that's super cliche. Everything happens for a reason. But, like, oh, you don't even know the reasons that you are going to use this in a way that you can't even imagine yet. That is like, we're talking about writing about co-parenting. Do you think that when I was in it, like drowning in it and suffering and totally by myself feeling like I am the only person going through this because everyone else seems to be vacationing with their ex-husbands, Gwyneth Paltrow. Like I felt so in pain when I was in it. And I had no idea that at some point I would use that and bottle up that experience and I would be able to like use it as a balm to offer other people. That feels so good. No experience is wasted. I think that is something that writers need to know. I think it's something that people need to know, that everything that is happening is happening for you to use at some point. And not knowing how is really scary, but just knowing that that is a solid truth. I mean, one of the ways (laughs) that—I highly recommend everybody write a memoir because you will see— how all of these things are connected. You will see like, oh, that's what—that's mm-hmm, why I went through that yeah, because that prepared me for this. It's like making a timeline of your growth. It's horrifying and painful and very time-consuming to do this, but it definitely is confirmation that all of this has a purpose and you're not going to see it immediately. And you might not even see it like anywhere close to immediately after, but like at one point— it will all make sense. It was not for nothing. No pain ever is just is just there because, you know, God or spirit or the universe got bored and wanted to just torture you one day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's there for a reason. Yeah, it's like that Ted talk whatever happens to you make
1: good art. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. It's, and it's true. That's where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting though. I think we talked about this in in class or maybe outside of it about how taking 6 months before—after something happens, Mm -hmm. to process it before you make art about it? Yeah. Is that what you did with co-parenting, with things that you've written? Oh,
0: I would say that for most of the things that I've written, it's been years. Like, I will not write about my marriage to Josh for years to come, like my actual marriage, because there's still so much that needs—so much dust needs to settle. Mm -hmm. Um, But everything else I've written about has been—there's been that valuable buffer of time— The only thing that has not had that buffer of time, uh, I wrote a piece on co-parenting for Time magazine, and I wrote that when I was in it, when I was so sick of everybody saying, it's so great, it's so rosy, it's so wonderful, we're all so evolved. Like, yes, true, maybe, sometimes, but not a lot of the time. And I thought… That piece had a purpose, which is that I wanted people to feel like they could say this sucks. Because if people can't, if people are not allowed the space to to show weakness, they'll never feel comfortable, um, they'll never be comfortable feeling it. And in order to grow and get stronger, you have to realize that you are a little bit weak. And that's not a bad thing, you know what I mean? I wanted somebody to— Feel less alone. Yeah, to feel less alone because I knew from conversations I— had, had, that I had after that piece came out, oh my God, I had hundreds of responses that were just like, thank you. Yeah. I feel like I've been trying to live up to this standard that is impossible. So yeah, that piece served a purpose and I was very much still in it and living that reality, which is probably why it was written. Everything that I write quickly, you know is coming from like a place of truth
1: because you don't even have to think about that. You're just like,
0: blah, give me a pen. Yeah. <laughs> it's just out there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Letting it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there are so many things I want to ask you, so we'll do the quick fair questions now. Some of these are easy, and then some of them are, are longer, but okay. I'll warm you up with the easy ones. Okay, best thing <laughs> you've eaten in the last week.
0: Oh. Best thing I've eaten in the last week. Oh, this is such a hard question. I was just in the Hamptons for the weekend. Best thing I've eaten in the last week. You know what? There is this amazing… Um, it's like a little French restaurant on the lower east side. It's called Les Enfants de Bohême.
1: They have a Nutella crepe. I know that's so basic. It is so good. Amazing. Okay, this is a this is a time we didn't really talk about this. Let's actually quickly talk about I was gonna ask you your favorite place in New York. So maybe Oh wow. Tell I me that. So okay. Yeah, tell me a couple places. I for feel like we what? should mention. You're leaving New York. I'm
0: leaving New York. So the next things I was
1: going to ask you were, what will you miss about New York? Mm -hmm. And what will you miss most? And what will you miss least about New York? Okay. And then I want to know your favorite places.
0: Great. Okay. So what will I miss most about New York? I will say first that I've been here for 11 years and that feels like long enough. I have been trying to leave New York for about eight of those years. (laughs) So this is like a long time coming. I'm not yet nostalgic about it. I'm sure the second that I board the plane, I will be like, oh no. But right now, I'm I'm actually finding that the second I decided to move, I started to appreciate everything here, knowing that I'm leaving it, you know? Why did you decide to move? Oh. I have been, like I said, like I've, I've been wanting to leave New York since 2015, 14. I came here thinking, I want to have the New York experience. I want to be there for two years. All of my friends laugh at me because I was like, when they would say, how long do you want to live there? I would say, long enough to learn the subway system and then be on my way. Like, yeah. I want to be—if cons- someone asks me for directions and they think I'm a real New Yorker, great. It's my
1: time to go. Yeah, I feel like I can go now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can leave. And—but um, then life does what life does, right? I met someone. I had a child. My career started to take off. And I—in years pass. And I've been here for a long time. And so I've been wanting to leave for a while because I feel like I've outgrown it. I feel like everything I came here to do, I have done so much more. I mean, if my goal was learn the subway system and maybe publish something, I've definitely surpassed those goals. And the reality is like, I've been to every party I've been to every opening. I've been to everything. They're all they're all the same, right? Like they're all the same. You're going to have the same beautiful nights under the stars with your friends on a rooftop. You're going to have those conversations and you've lived them. And I feel like there's nothing new here for me. And I also feel like the point I am now in my career and, and who I am now as a mother and a woman, I need the next year to incubate because I know that my life is severely shifting in a great way, but before it does, I need to protect what is most important to me, which is one, my family, and two, really who is, you know what I mean, like who is inside. Whoever this person is, I need to create a beautiful wall around that so that it is for me and my people, and so that when I open myself up to the world in a much more substantial way, that that's protected a little bit. So I'm leaving for an incubation period. Something I wrote down in my manifestation journal three years ago and then did not manipulate or push or force. And everything that has led up to now is like, oh, this is why I had to wait till 2019. That makes sense. So what am I going to miss about New York? I am going to miss, honestly, the skyline. I go to Brooklyn a lot, the Dumbo wing, right? And just being on the water or seeing the water in the city in that contrast, where it looks like when you're looking at the city, it looks so serene when you're far away from it, and then knowing the chaos that is inside, I love that contrast so much, especially at night. I'm going to miss that view. I'm going to miss my people here, but I know that my people are my people wherever I go. The friendships that I have and the people that I that I bring into my life, they're more solid in a way that we don't need to be in the same space. Mm -hmm. What I'm not going to miss about New York is the constant just like chasing of something. I'm not at a point in my life where I'm chasing anything, right? So that, when I moved here, I was 20, 21, 22. And so I was chasing everything. I was chasing men. I was chasing pleasure. I was chasing money. I was chasing opportunities. I was chasing a career. I was always chasing. And now I have, everything that I want. I mean like that feeling of like I want for nothing right now. Mm. And this is a city that just has its, you know, is constantly offering you things. So it's just like, no thank you. No thank you. (laughs) No thank you. So yeah, I'm not gonna miss that kind of frenetic chasing. I'm going to a place where I think it's so much more calm than than anywhere I've ever lived before in my life. And I'm I think that is in alignment with with how I feel inside.
1: Mm. Yeah. That's so cool. And have you read the "Goodbye to All That"? The Joan Didion. Oh, absolutely, I love yeah, that. I love
0: it. And it's also like, I think that when people start to get angry in New York is whenever they have overstayed their welcome. Whenever they keep trying to, maybe chase things that are no that are not for them. Yeah, right. I think
1: it's kind of like grief. It's a different threshold for everyone. Like, yeah. I'm wondering when my time here. I've been here for two years exactly. Like right yeah. now, actually.
0: Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thanks. Happy anniversary. <laughs>
1: Thanks. And I'm wondering, is it my time to go? And I'm in this space where now I can really be anywhere. And it's very overwhelming, but very exciting. And But also, yeah, just figuring out when you're done somewhere is I a think complicated that, thing.
0: Yeah. And I think that you will have a piece about leaving. If I had tried to do this years ago I would have felt hesitant. I would have felt oh but what if like I don't know I don't feel that I feel like I was telling you earlier like I, I want to do an Irish goodbye on New York City and just sneak onto the plane yeah. and and in the middle of the night because I feel such calm about what I've accomplished here and what I've lived here. I mean I have I have sucked the life out of New York City. I have tasted everything I have experienced more than I ever thought I was going to here. And so, when you're ready to leave, you'll be the first to know. You'll feel it. Yeah. yeah. And it won't feel like, like you're second guessing it or you're forcing yourself out or you're being kicked out.
1: Yeah. Oh, I like that. But
0: as I was going to say, my favorite place yeah. is in New York. I'll just focus on places to write because I have spent oh, so great. much of my life writing here. All of my friends make fun of me because I spend so much time in hotel lobbies. <laughs> so, the Marlton is oh, I amazing. Love that. It's right. uh, I live down the street from there. It's amazing. Magical in there. I was so bummed when it got really popular for a minute <laughs> and then it was, like, packed all the time. The Marlton has an amazing fireplace and so you can cozy. sit in their lobby all day, every day. Yeah, day. Mr. C, which is at the seaport. Yeah, it's I feel like, like these are, like, just for me. <laughs> these are just for you. It's empty almost all the time. Okay. And, the, I mean, they have let me sit in there for hours and hours and it's so quiet and it's so beautiful. Ludlow Hotel in the back garden so stunning no one's ever back there and it's insulated so you can go out there in the winter and feel like it is not freezing outside and then I, I mean I cried
1: very hard <laughs> there once <laughs> I had oh a meeting with someone like the day after this breakup oh no and it was like a sort of a worky thing yeah and I just bawled to the point someone working there had to come and give me a tissue so I have a very but that's so beautiful loving, yeah
0: totally <laughs> I love those experiences but as soon as
1: you said that I like got the pang of the last time I was there <laughs>
0: Um, the number of places I have cried in this city. Oh God, that could be a whole we could we could make a whole yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could make a whole book of those. But um, the last place in New York City that I love so much is actually just by the water. So there's I've I have lived in the Seaport for years of my experience here, two different places, and just this little overpass. It's like it's not pretty by any means. It's under a bridge. I feel like a troll, <laughs> but it's like. I've had so many emotions on those benches out there and it's just this place where I think that you are allowed to celebrate and you're allowed to cry and you're allowed to just like be in whatever emotional state you're in in this very public space and it's like it's almost
1: like you're guarded it's it's beautiful I love it. My little bench at the South Street Seaport. That's so magical. I'm writing down all of those and going to go on, like, a (laughs) Jess writing tour. You
0: should. Honestly, they're the best writing places. I have not told people about these places for years because I (laughs) don't—
1: Now that I'm leaving, I'm like, great, I don't care if they're overcrowded. (laughs) I know. It's funny. I have this coffee shop in the West Village that I love so much that I talk about on here. And I've run into so many people who listen to the podcast it's there, so which is funny. lovely. But then I'll <laughs> be like trying away. to work and, and then it's fine if they come. Just let me sit with you and I can't find a yeah, yeah, table. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. Okay. Favorite piece you've ever written?
0: Ooh, favorite piece I've ever written would have to be, I think it would have to be my Modern Love piece because it's it's the the centerpiece of my
1: entire book.
0: And it's that is so my, my
1: next favorite piece will be my book. <laughs> Greatest lesson on parenting, if you had to say one thing. Man,
0: that kid is like a little Buddha. I feel like he teaches me every—I mean, he teaches me every single day about how to be a person. Greatest lesson on parenting. Oof. I listened to this Oprah podcast yesterday or the day before and I will blank on the woman's name. You can I figure I just it out. to that one. It's yeah. about how like we as parents come at parenting with this idea of like, I'm going to fix this child. I'm not going to make all the same mistakes my parents did. And we're trying to control our kids and turn them into these beings. And the reality is that our kids are the professional like be- beings. Like they, yeah. they just are, you know what I mean? They wake up in the morning and they are just living and they are in the moment. And we should be taking lessons from them. my My parenting strategy has been like,
1: listen to your kid.
0: <laughs> it's so good.
1: It's really, yeah. It's so chill. Greatest lesson on romantic love.
0: Greatest lesson on romantic love. Ooh, Ma- man. romantic
1: relationships. Love,
0: love this topic. Greatest lesson on romantic love has probably been. I know Oprah says it, but she's right. When someone tells you who who they are, listen to them the first time the person who I spent years of my life suffering over said to me early on in our relationship, I cannot love you like you deserve to be loved. And I was like, oh, I'll show you how. <laughs> like, no, 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 I'll just teach you. Well, I didn't. Dear, dear reader, I did not teach him. Yeah, listen to people when they tell you who they are because people run around this world saying to you very clearly when you meet them, this is who I am. This is what I can give you. This is what I can't. and our narrative that's constantly running through our brain, that is spinning usually a very different story. Mm, So good.
1: Greatest lesson on dating, meeting people. I feel like you're very magnetic. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, as far as me, so I am on, I haven't written about this yet, but I'm sure at some point I will. I am now coming into one year of celibacy. I have dated no one. I have looked at no one. I've slept with, it's honestly amazing. It's like men are invisible to me. It's Kind of magical. <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but I like it. So, as far as meeting people, great. Meet all the people you want to meet. I think it's a beautiful. This is a beautiful city to do that. Dating advice. Oh man, not everyone's going to like this, but I feel like it's true. Okay, I'll just give you. The, I'll give you the exercise my therapist gave me, which is really, really been beneficial in my life. Make a list of the partner you want. In your life, make a list of like every characteristics that they have, how they treat their family, how they are with kids, how they fight, what what their work ethic is. Very be as detailed as possible, and then look at that list, and then become everything on that list. Mm, so good, so hard, yeah. <laughs> so hard, but so necessary. Otherwise, you're just going to keep looking for people that um, are creating characteristics that you don't have in yourself, that you want for
1: yourself. Oh, yeah. Man. It's tough. Got all the work to do. <laughs> that's the celibacy. Um, okay. You seem really confident. Have you always been that way? What mm-hmm. advice do you have on confidence? And- yeah.
0: That's, that's an awesome question. And this is going to sound terrible. I have always been this way, and here's why. I was homeschooled for nine years. I was never bullied. I never had anyone in my life tell me that I couldn't. I never had anyone in my life tell me that I shouldn't, that I wasn't good enough. I had two parents who were all kinds of crazy and beautiful and wonderful, but they absolutely made me feel like I was so funny and so beautiful and so smart. And I have walked around this entire world with their voices in my head and their laughter in my head. So that confidence 100% comes from Supportive parents, and from a lack of just being around kids who are just so hating on themselves that they have to hate on you too.
1: That's so lovely and sweet. I really am so glad that that happened for you. So you can feel <laughs> like that I'm way. so
0: happy for you. No, it, it's, but it's lovely because it really you're is. An remor- it's almost like growing up in a in a little yeah. bubble.
1: Well, I told you this in class when you told us that you were homeschooled, that like all my favorite people are homeschooled. Yeah. It's really a, because you get to thing. come
0: into your own without anybody yeah. else's expectations. And the reality is that the world expects a lot from
1: people. Totally. Yeah. You wrote an essay a couple of years ago called Why Every Woman Should Have a Male Friend. Oh. And I've never had a good male friend. Can you talk about that essay <laughs> and, and having male friends? Yeah. So
0: I will preface this by saying, this is before I read Text Me When You Get Home. <laughs> Which I, we love. Previous Yeah, podcasts, as we yes. love. <laughs> I— How I Met Jess, actually. Yeah, it's so funny. The world works in silly, silly ways. The reason that that book struck me so much is because I've always been that girl who's like, I just get along better with guys. I just always have male friends. And the truth of that essay is that there are men in my life where our interactions over years and years and years has never been sexual, partially because half of those men are gay. I have nothing to offer them. Mm But the straight men in my life that have only been there for the purpose of friendship, um, I think that—I think it's so valuable to have—just to have the ability to see men as allies, not want anything from each other, not need anything from each other. I think so much of what happens in romantic relationships is we just need, right? We just need so much. Oh, my God. Yeah. But friendships, it's it's voluntary. It's very much like, hi, how are you? Catching up, like, it's very low stakes. And so I needed men in my life that didn't need anything from me. And I was fortunate enough to find them. I think when I wrote that piece, I wrote it with the expectation that every woman has access to men who can show up without asking for anything in return. And what I've learned since that piece was published is that, A lot of women think they have men like that in their lives, where it's like, this is not romantic. We're just friends. Nobody wants anything from anyone. And just to find out, like, that that person that you think is your friend is actually just playing a really, really long game. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Totally. So I think that there's value in male friendships. It gives you the other side of a story. But I wrote that from a place of not knowing the value and not having lived and seen the value of female
1: friendships. So. That's so—you you should do a follow-up now. I know, right? Be like, and P.S. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was this, the postscript exactly. Um, What do you do when you're feeling overwhelmed or disorganized? You seem to me like you're someone who's really with it and just together. And you have to be, I guess, as a mom and such a successful person. But yeah. what are your kind of tips for that?
0: Um, so I meditate. I know it's—I know that, like, there's probably, like, half the people listening that are just like, yeah, meditation, sh- meditation. I, for years—so my friend Amanda, who I love so much, she, for years, was like, Jess, I see you suffering. Jess, I see you really frustrated and really, like, overwhelmed. You need to go to my meditation teacher. And I would be like, okay, I'll go to your meditation. You know what I mean? Like, you're just dismissive of it because it sounds woo-woo and stupid. Mm -hmm. Oh, my life is going to change by sitting there and closing my eyes? No, thank you. I would much rather open my eyes and stress about things. (laughs) So I— Dismissed it for a lot of years. And finally, when I had run out of options, this is my three year mark, three years back, I didn't have any other ideas of how I could fix my life and my situation. And I just kept feeling the same that I was doing the same things incorrectly. So I went to this meditation teacher. Her name is Emily Fletcher. She's amazing. She wrote a book called Stress Less, Accomplish More. I keep messing it up and saying, stress more, accomplish less, which is—it's not a good sell. So I went to her—I went to Ziva Meditation in Soho, and I—if she would have said to me, Jessica, here's what you need to do to change your life. Find a sheep (laughs) and then go, like, slaughter it on a rock somewhere. I would have been like, okay. I was so desperate for answers at that point or just anyone to give me a suggestion on how I could just take control over my life. And thankfully, she didn't ask me to do anything crazy. She asked me to, like, just close my eyes and listen to my thoughts. And I was like, wait, I thought meditation you're not supposed to think. She's like, no, whoever said that is a liar. (laughs) So I started meditating. And anyone who knows me, there's a very direct line of my before meditation and my after because I was reactive to everything. Everything. I was always on the verge of exploding with some kind of emotion, whether it was tears or anger or something. And now. I it's like um it's like the world happens in slow motion. So if something happens that my instinct is to be irritated or be angry about it, I, I can like actually watch it pass by, like okay, and and absorb it, like, okay, hmm, interesting. What does that mean? Why is that like kind of interrogate your feelings instead of letting them run your entire life? I would really um highly recommend meditating. If I was not meditating. Uh, you'd know it because I would be so angry.
1: Yeah, I always say I like the way I behave yeah. when I do it, yeah. you know? Like, it just it makes that reaction time, like, slightly quicker.
0: And it's so necessary. Yeah. Like, you need to have that little buffer between event and reaction. Otherwise, you are ruled by what happens around you and what happens to you. My son, one of the biggest things when I started meditating, I was like, how am I going to get 20 minutes twice a day away from my child? Like, he's never going to let me have that. He was like, great. I've been also wanting 20 minutes twice a day away from you. (laughs) So I explained it to him the way that Emily explained it to me, which was think of meditating as brushing your teeth. If you go outside of the world and you don't brush your teeth, like you're going to be offending everyone you speak to. You're going to be just like a walking, (laughs) whatever. I don't remember how she said it. But now I'm like, I have to meditate before I leave my house, before I have coffee, before I do anything else. Because if not— You're going to see what I look like when I'm not put together, when I'm not like my best self. And I don't like that version of me. I much prefer this one that is just like kind of chill and like very, I mean, you should do like a follow-up of the people in my life to talk about the before and after because they're just like, wow, she was angry. I was just so angry all the time and overwhelmed and frustrated. And I got sick of being like that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So I've been doing TM meditation since 20 which is similar to um, Emily's going to do the podcast. It, oh, you're going to love her. She's so good. Oh, I'm excited. They're <laughs> they're similar, I think their yeah. style and so I really struggle to get that second one in. When I lived in Michigan, I got the two in all the time. Yeah. But now if I'm out for the day and it's winter, especially it's it's hard to get that second one in. Do you I know. get them both in every day?
0: I have to put it in my calendar. Like I actually have to have my phone buzz and there's no, and like I know There's nothing else on this buffer of time. Like I have set apart this time so I can go find a space when you're fortunate enough to work at a place like the wing or work out of a place like the wing, you have the setup right there. You can just sneak away off to a room, only take 20 minutes out of your work to go meditate. But I have meditated everywhere like headphones in and just people won't bother you if you're sitting on a bench with your eyes closed and headphones in, um, Yeah, like, everywhere. I've gone into just whatever empty office is in a building. I mean, it's that necessary. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I need to get better at that second one. And the thing
0: is that it's just, like, there is no other—there's no shortcut. Mm -hmm. You just make time for it because you—I mean, you realize, like, it makes you better. It makes you the best version of yourself possible. So, of course, like, you, no one's going to scold you for missing a couple of sessions, and you're the one who is missing out on the benefits of it. But you actually have to, like, plan around it. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah.
1: This relates to to meditation, I think. But we always talk about morning and evening routines, so the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning and the last three things you do before bed.
0: Okay. So um, there's, like, an alternate universe where I'm, like, amazing, and I wake up and I— meditate and I have a gratitude journal and then I do yoga like that's my alternate universe Jess but real life Jess presses snooze a couple of times like I hate the morning so much and I also don't have a real I'm going to put air quotes I don't have a real job where it's like I have to be somewhere at 9 a.m. so I have a lot of flexibility there I press snooze a couple of times And then I wake up my child because he sleeps in bed with me, which is a very uh, controversial topic. I don't care. I love it so much. He sleeps in bed with me. So after I've pressed snooze a couple of times, I wake up and we just sit there in bed and we talk for like 15, 20 minutes. What did you dream about? Like just clearing our minds, right? And I think of that very much as its own meditation because I'm not thinking about what else is happening in my world. I do not check my phone. Oh, this is another thing. I don't have my—like, I sleep with my phone on airplane mode. So when I go to turn off my alarm, I'm not checking messages. Nothing has come through because my phone is basically off. That is necessary. It's so necessary. Otherwise, you just wake up, and the second you're awake, you are a victim to your day. Like, everything that is coming in overnight or in the last couple of hours, you then have to deal with? No. So three things. Press snooze. Talk to my son— and then I always wash my face with cold water because my mom—and maybe it's not even true. I've never even Googled it. That's how much I trust her. My mom said that the only way to really actually wake up
1: is to wash your face with cold water.
0: Wow. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, is this true? I've been it.
1: doing this for 30 minutes. Well, it doesn't matter. Placebo. It's yeah, working yeah. for you. So <laughs>
0: after that, I'm awake. I'm ready to start my day. And then we go. The three things I do before bed, this is do, something do that you I— got, do.
1: You, so you take him to school and oh, you yeah. do— And then you, like, get into your work day. Do you have any, like, yes. coffee, breakfast, any of that Well, I stopped work? drinking
0: coffee. Um, I stopped drinking coffee,
1: which was so—
0: Wow, that was so hard. I think that was harder than stopping alcohol. Because caffeine disguises exhaustion. And I work really hard, and you work really hard, and we all work really hard. So— we don't want to feel exhausted. That's why we keep drinking coffee. That's why totally. we keep having caffeine, to kind of stimulate that. So I stopped drinking caffeine and started drinking Ticino, which is—I think I have a cup of it back there. But it tastes like coffee. It smells like coffee. It has no caffeine. And it's made of, like, I don't know, nuts and berries and who knows what they put in there. It's all natural, though. So I'll drop off Noah, and he's right around the corner, which, oh, my God, I think the key to happiness is minimizing your commute to nothing— And then you can just wake up and put your flip-flops on and walk to—oh, it's so nice. Every place that I go to is within 10 minutes walking distance from my house. So I actually don't have to go anywhere. So that removes, like, the rush and the racing and the traffic and that frustration. I drop off Noah, and then I either go to the assemblage or the wing or one of my many lobbies. (laughs) And then I— Before I answer emails, before I do anything, I just do 45 minutes of my own writing. Because otherwise, I might not get to it. And that to me is like the most important thing. If I stopped writing, I feel like it would stop everything else in my life. I would stop teaching. I would stop this. I would. So it's the most important thing. And I do 45. I don't even. Isn't that crazy? It's my job. And I don't even give it a full hour in the morning because I know that's not realistic. And after that is like. The never-ending emails. I could be a full-time job just dealing with my inbox. Yeah, I
1: feel like I'm a professional email writer. It gets insane. Very and I love that you me. have
0: your out-of-office because just, yeah. like, expect a delay. That's yeah. it. Yeah.
1: It's been really hard for me, the whole email thing and email hygiene. And so honestly, hard. like, being in your class, it was really good because I just let myself get really behind because I'm like, I'm going to focus on writing this essay for four weeks. Yeah. and. It taught me that I can do that when I want to work on a project.
0: Absolutely. And the thing is, I really put this into practice. And maybe it's my years of being a passive-aggressive assistant. I ignore a lot of things because I feel like the person who is asking me something or needing something from me will figure it out on their own if I don't step in. And that, honestly, is, like, where the learning occurs is, like, okay, I actually don't need this person. I'm only reaching out because I feel uncomfortable of, like, whatever I'm feeling right now. And then the three things I do before bed, my son has been an amazing teacher in all ways. So his bedtime routine very much mirrors mine where we, like, I'll take a bath or I'll take a shower and then I will never, I cannot be on my phone before bed. I know that people think it's really hard to break this habit, but it's not. You just put your phone in a different place or you turn it off or you like actively say I'm done. So I'll take a shower and then I will read a book or I will handwritten pages. I'll edit them, but I won't look at a screen because I think that really impacts how I sleep. And I didn't realize I was getting such shitty sleep until I wore a Fitbit. I turned 30 and bought a Fitbit because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my sleep and I sleep like I sleep like a crazy person, like maybe one or two hours of actual rest a night. And the rest of it is just me moving around and oh my God. So I had to change something. Oh, and I'll also drink tea before I go to sleep. Like the, whatever the bedtime tea is that has a little fortune that yeah, we love in this family. Like, seriously. It's like, that is my little treat. I have to find little treats and ways to reward myself because yeah. no one else is doing it for me. Yeah. So that's my little like, okay, if you drink your tea before bed, you get this little like quote that yeah. you're going to love.
1: <laughs> it's so. Little. I feel like life is just a way of gamifying it to make ourselves feel good and yeah. have little moments of pleasure. Cause it's really hard to be a person.
0: It's really <laughs> But at the same time, it's really hard to be a person. But it's also really, really cool. Yeah. When I think about the conversations that we have, like the conversations that people have, this conversation, you know, it's really cool that we come from, and we meaning like all of us, come from totally different walks of life. We have totally different experiences, different scars, different stories. And yet we can sit here and, and kind of just hold a space for each other. I think that that's a magical thing. I think that's what happens when you write. I think that's what happens when you read. I think it's what ha- what's happening in this room. So, yes, being a human being is really, really hard. But it does have some nice little rewards that come with it.
1: It's all equally magical and wonderful. And yeah. on the other side of pain is beauty and love and I know. connection. And
0: I know. I think it's so strange that we, like, as a culture, we shy away from the things that hurt neglecting the reality that the things that hurt are usually coincide with the things that heal us, the things that make us happy, you know, like, emotions are kind of just muddled in there together and to turn off to turn off our ability to feel only half of them is not possible.
1: Yeah, it's like what you were talking about before about having a thick skin blocks you from not only the bad stuff, but feeling the highs is high too.
0: Honestly, it is amazing. I feel like I I read it or I wrote this to my class. Um, I do an online class, but it was just like, if you have a thick skin, you cannot feel the breeze on your arm. Like that to me is just, I wanna feel all those things. And I think that you're very much the same way where it's it's not even sentimentality. It's just we want to feel alive, right? And so part of that is, yes, feeling happy and feeling completely enraptured in a moment. And it's also feeling pain and feeling lost and feeling confused and feeling lost, right? Like yeah. that's… I'm alone and scared. Yeah, that's all of it. And. I, I mean, if you look through all of those journals, they all say the same thing, which is just like, here is a moment I felt alive. Here's a moment I felt alive. And it looks very different from year to year and book to book, but they're all saying the same thing, which is really like, I was alive. I mean, very Beyonce, like I was here. You know what I mean? Like I lived
1: and I was loved. And do you still journal? We talk about journaling on this podcast.
0: I do. I wish,
1: oh my God, there are so many. So there's one right
0: behind you, that little. Did you go to that thing at the wing? They had like oh, a Yeah, handmade. I got that
1: too. <laughs> I feel like
0: I see that notebook it was a great everywhere. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I started writing in that. That's my manifestation journal or my second one. It's so funny. I love that you think I'm organized and I think I'm not. But now, thinking about my journals, I'm very much organized. I have one journal for manifesting. I have, oh, I don't, I think it's at Josh's house. I have this really beautiful journal that is just like my, um, it's like the things I know will one day end up in a book somewhere, mm, but like I'm not going to write so it good, yet. Yeah. yeah, And so that's where I keep all of those things. And those are really important to me because they're like the baby ideas. Yeah, don't that, lose that. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? It will become something at some point. Um, but I do still journal. I do not do it in a structured way. I do it. It's funny. Journaling is the thing that I, that I find pockets of time for. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: We always talk about body image on this podcast because you know about my history. Have you ever struggled with body image or when you're not feeling great about yourself, what do you do to pivot? And I also think you have such great style and we Uh. kind of already talked about this with confidence, but yeah, just your thoughts with that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like there is definitely, there's been a shift in my, just in how I see myself. And it's very clear to see why. So when I was not somebody's wife, I was much more free to do what I wanted and dress how I wanted and look how I wanted. I wasn't under the microscope in any way. And then when I became somebody's wife, and not just somebody's wife, but somebody somebody whose name was known, when I became yeah, we that. Say,
1: we can say yeah, you married a famous will person. will <laughs> say his
0: name. Yeah. So when I married Josh, it was just like I was under this microscope that I had never been under before. And uh, I learned really quickly that I could not listen to the things that were being said because if i started to that was like a path that i could not go down again like you remember i grew up in a bubble yeah. where i was wonderful and loved and beautiful and funny and smart and capable of anything and suddenly i was under this microscope where every comment was questioning does this woman deserve this man and I think I, like, allowed myself to dive into that tunnel for one day. And then I was like, nope, (laughs) I'm not going down there. Because, one, that will never have the answer to who I am and what I'm worth. Um, And I was already pretty stable and solid in myself before that. So as far as body image, I think, you know, I really, really believe that this is true. The way that we speak to ourselves is the way that our parents speak to us. And I never saw my mother. It's funny, I see it now because she's getting older and she's stunning. She is stupidly beautiful. And if she knew how beautiful she was, she would never even mention the words. Like, she's always like, I need a plastic surgery. I need a facelift. I'm like, you're out of your mind. But I get it. She's, she looks in a mirror and she feels 15 and she, her body doesn't reflect that. But I grew up not watching my mother ever pick herself apart. I remember once seeing her on a... Um, what was it? It was like the stepper. Does anyone remember is that what it's called? It was like these videos and you would actually step on this aerobics thing and it was just like literally one step up. I don't know what it did. It was a waste of money. <laughs> I saw her on that once maybe twice in my childhood. I never knew her to diet. And again, like I'm I didn't she didn't pass down any of that to me. And I didn't have any other women in my life because, again, I was homeschooled. I was very—I I had a very specific view of the world. And so I didn't see other women tearing themselves apart or speaking unkindly to themselves. And when I got to high school, was, like, the first—so I, I started going to high school, public school, and I was in 10th grade. So that was my first experience of, like, watching other people be unkind to their bodies in a way that is bonding— That was terrifying to me. I was a cheerleader, and we would be in the dressing room or in the— Locker room. In the locker rooms. And I, like, I basically have always had the same body, which is, like, not very curvy, not very um, typical Latina feminine, I think. But it's always been my body, and I've always accepted what it is and what it isn't. And watching the women around me just take— pride in tearing themselves apart just like comment by comment I was horrified and I couldn't believe that they I couldn't believe that they allowed each other to talk to themselves that way Whole Foods has this ridiculous sign that's just like treat um speak to yourself like it's someone you love or treat yourself like it's someone you love good it's so so good job Whole Foods and it's just like I hear my you know I have a lot of female friends now and I think they're beautiful. And I think that they're so smart and they're so capable. And then I hear them say these things about themselves. And I'm always like, do not speak to my friend that way. Like, you don't get to. Sorry. <laughs> like, I will stand between you. It's hard to undo all of the things that the world tells us we are and we aren't. Right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that I struggled with, it wasn't so much as as my body image, but I would make my—I said this earlier—I would make my body pay for the mistakes of men in my life. So if I was in a relationship, for example, when I was in college and my then boyfriend was cheating on me and what did I do? I went out and got incredibly drunk and felt like shit the next day and went like on a bender for a week. Like, why would I, why would I punish myself with my own body? You know? And I think that, Again, it goes back to numbing and not feeling the things we don't want to feel. But for me, it was a very short-lived um, lesson where it was like, I don't want to give this person any more power. And so my retaliation is just being kind to
1: myself in a way they couldn't be. Mm. Yeah. So, And I really relate to the part about seeing other people that you love saying bad things about their body. That's yeah. been particularly hard for me because I've had, you know, to use the word expanders again, people who I look at as so beautiful— and I admire, yeah. and I want to be like. And then I'll hear them say something bad about them, their body, and I'm like, oh, but to me, they were so confident, and beautiful, and telling me that I could be yeah. in this body that I'm in, and then being knocked down by that. It's so. It's just anyway. No,
0: and I think I, I think it's. Uh, I think social media fucks with this. I think I think there's like this standard of what bodies should look like. And because I didn't grow up with magazines, (laughs) I go, no, I'm like, thanks, Mom and Dad, for sheltering me all those years in our bunker. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But now I'm like, you know, my body and our bodies are amazing. I made a human in my body. Like, that to me— Crazy. I was obviously, like, the heaviest I've ever been when I was pregnant with Noah. And I remember thinking, I cannot get any bigger than this. Like, it's actually—I'm going to pop. Like, there's nowhere else for the skin to go. And even then, thinking—not feeling unattractive, but feeling so powerful, like, oh, my God, look at what I'm doing with this. And then watching a body go back, oh, my God, that in itself was just—it's like a weird science experiment. But I think, like, once we start to look at our bodies um, and start to judge them by what they are capable of doing and what they're capable of overcoming— it doesn't matter if you don't have this size or this. Like, it it just seems so insignificant when it's like, but our bodies are so damn good to us. Why are we so mean to them?
1: Yes, 1,000%. Okay, last question. This is just really a way to recommend things. So Mm -hmm. book, music, podcast, food, TV show. These can be all-time favorites or things that just anything you want to recommend. Okay,
0: so I will say two books, um, Rima Zaman, I Am Yours. I, I tell everybody to read that because I love it so much. And because it recently came out and because she's a beautiful soul. And I think anyone who has ever been a human being, not male, not female, but just anyone who's had a human experience will love her book. It is, it is so healing. And then Elaine Waltroth has a book that just came out called More Than Enough. It, I just finished reading it and I cried the entire time. And also, I'm like, I know Elaine's a writer. I know that. I know that I worked with her when she was a writer, when she was an editor. like, but I just forgot how good she is. I, I guess because she's done so many things since then. But her book is um, it's a memoir, and it's basically this idea of like how did she get, how did she become who she is? And it's she's had an amazing life experience. So those are the two books I would recommend. Music. Um, actually, this song I can't stop listening to. It's by Ruth B. How is it already? 314. I know. It's crazy. (laughs) I'm so (laughs) sorry. (laughs) No, that's totally fine. Ruth B., and it's called Lost Boy. My brother and I have been listening to this song forever. It's like the last week I'm obsessed with it. And then I don't watch TV. Um, I don't have a TV in my apartment. I haven't had a TV in my house since I was a child. When my parents were between jobs and didn't have money but rather than tell us that they couldn't afford cable they were just like so we don't have cable anymore because the internet or the the TV and cable and TV shows are all secular <laughs> like we were super religious i don't know if i ever mentioned that but they just basically pawned it off like tv is the devil so we don't have it anymore um, but This Is Us is the last thing that I binge watched on Netflix and I don't know if it's a good show but I do know that I am madly in love with Milo Ventimiglia. So, <laughs> I don't care if it's a good show. I love him so much. Um and then what was the other thing?
1: Movies. Um Movies. I think that's everything.
0: Um yeah. I don't know about movies.
1: <laughs> Is that terrible? No, it's totally fine. But, I'll ask you something else because I, I, there was like four questions I yeah, usually ask people that I don't, but one I feel like I should touch on really quick. Sure. We always talk about spirituality, God, what happens when we die, yeah, and now oh, knowing God. that you grew up religious, where are you with that?
0: So I grew up super religious. I say that, but then I remember that there's a lot of like wacko people. Um, I was in church three times a week for services. And then I was like on the dance team. And then I was on the drama team. And my mom would volunteer to do ministry. So we were always in the church. And I also grew up with all of those rules that go along with church. We're like, you're not allowed to do this. And I couldn't watch PG-13 movies. I couldn't go—I couldn't date boys. I couldn't do anything. So my experience with religion was very limiting Like I couldn't do anything. I wasn't allowed to do anything. It was so much attached to shame. If you broke this rule, you weren't valuable. God wouldn't want you. He wouldn't love you. So I outgrew the church around the same time that one of my best friends in the whole world, still to this day, he came out of the closet when we were in high school. And watching how our church congregation reacted to that put me off of church for life. It was just like suddenly this like very close-knit community I thought was really supportive of each other had limits that I didn't understand so I stopped going to church and it's been really interesting to think about spirituality because I want to raise my son with the belief of something else outside of us or something bigger than us but I don't yet know how to teach him that so I would say like a lot of people I am spiritually curious I believe that I believe that when we talk about God we're talking about we're talking about ourselves. I think we're talking about what's inside of us that people usually attribute to an external being. But I think it's what meditation taps into is like everything you need already exists within you. So
1: that's- You just have to let it out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: You just have to let it out. And I think that's really scary for people because we're told our whole lives that it's something else. It's something out there outside of you. And so we reach for all of these things. And then when we get them and we still feel the same, we're like, huh, I wonder what's wrong with me. Yeah. So as far as spirituality, it's, it's ever evolving and I'm now at a point where I'm comfortable with that, but my son and I, we, we talk about death probably more than most mothers and children because, you know, he's, he knows the book that I'm writing and it deals with the little boy's death and, and he lost his great grandmother and was there in the room when she took her last breaths. And so it's been a conversation in our home. And we, I I have been recording conversations with Noah since he could speak. Um, Usually, like, before bed or in the mornings, when they're really raw and vulnerable. And I email them to his email account so that years from now he'll have these. I know. I I wish my parents did
1: this for me. I want you to be my mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's a weird thing to say. (laughs) I love it though.
0: So, I have this recording where he we're talking about what happens after we die. And I believe in reincarnation because it seems like the most interesting option. Mm -hmm. It just seems like the most fun. Um, And so we always talk about what will we come back as. And so, you know, he'll say things like, well, if if I'm a dolphin, I want you to be one of those birds that dive into the water so we can still, like, be around each other. And we talk about an idea of heaven and what it would look like. And to hear it from a child is so beautiful. He's like— The way he describes it, it sounds a whole lot like New York. He's like, okay, so we'll live on this street and we'll live in a very tall hotel because my child is the hashtag not relatable. And he wants to live in hotels like it's he's probably stayed in as many hotels as he's as most people have in their entire lives. And he's only six. (laughs) So to him, heaven is a hotel where everyone you love lives in the same Ah. building and you're just like. And you go oh, on the elevator. that's my
1: heaven too. I talk <laughs> about that all the time of like living on a commune or something and just having all the people I love. It's
0: amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's what it looks like to him. And I think that's, you know, we live in a society where it's so strange. You only see all of the people you know and love at your wedding or at your funeral. Yeah. And it's like, why don't yes. we do that more? Totally. More congregating of our loved ones, like without the, you know, without the eulogies. Oh my <laughs> that's gosh, crazy. that's
1: like. That was, like, a watershed moment for me. I've never thought of it like that. I was just having—I had, like, a really bad birthday, and then oh, there was this no. restaurant I wanted to go to, and I was like, I should just do a do-over and have them all come. And then I was like, I don't think people are going to come for me twice. Why? In a, in a, in a month They might period. not get you gifts every month you throw your birthday, but they'll definitely, like— oh. I don't know. People are busy. Anyway, that was my thought of, like, how it's true. we don't get to celebrate often, yeah. unless it's a birthday or unless it's a—
0: Well, also, I read this— um, I forget where I saw it, but it was this idea of like, why don't we ever have showers for like our friends who are starting businesses? Yeah, like holy shit. Yeah, that's Yeah, there's a like really that Sex idea. in the City
1: episode about how you only you have to spend so much money on people's babies and weddings, oh and my but God. for a single person, you're yeah, it's like what is your milestone? Yeah. Your milestone is that you started your own business or
0: that you made this huge move. Or it's like you have all these things to celebrate, even though society is not really
1: like making a hallmark card for it yeah. just yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good talk to you forever, but it is so late, and I'm sure you ah, have to go, and I have to go. But okay. I love you, and thank you so much thank for doing you. this. This is
0: so wonderful. I would do this all day.
1: Did mm-hmm. you? Do you feel like you let everything out? The name of this podcast is "Let It Out." So did I, I squeeze you for did. all your juice?
0: I did. Honestly, I feel like there. You know how people say like, "Oh, I'm an open book." Usually, people who say that have a very curated idea of yeah. how they want to be perceived. And I feel like I'm past the point of like all of the appearances in my life. So there's not like there's not much more to let out. I feel like I am
1: very much. If you look at my Instagram, right, you see it's just like here it is. These are all the, the thoughts best. I've had. And I didn't mean to ask you about social media, which is something we always talk about too. So will you come back? Yeah, of Okay, course. great. I mean, <laughs> I when your book comes out? When does your book come out? 2020. Okay, okay well, feels great. Far Hopefully away, you'll come back before it's then. actually not far away. So weird. Okay, so we always end with something that's sort of weird, but I think you'll like it. Okay. We let out a deep breath together. So ready, inhale. Let it out. That feels so good. always feels a little
0: better, right? I love that.
1: All right, that was my episode with Jessica. Isn't she great? I really enjoy her. The emoji for this episode is obviously the pen because we talk about writing quite a bit. And that brings me to my likes and learns so just if you're new the emoji comment that on jess's instagram comment it on my instagram to let us know that you're still listening all the way to the end and what you thought and maybe share it with a friend or leave a review that'd be cool okay the moment you've been waiting for likes and learns i'm going to keep this quick because like i said that was packed with a lot of things to like and a lot of things to learn i learned a lot what i've been liking if you haven't tried the spiral notebooks from muji they're really great and i just can't deal with a notebook that isn't a spiral lately i don't like how it flops open i'm just really enjoying a spiral i might have talked about this in the past likes and learns but i don't care i'm very passionate about the fact that i just I'm leaning into needing spirals at this point. There's a really great stationary store in New York called Good for Study, I think, and I'll link to it. They have some good notebooks as well if you're in the mood for a new journal, maybe a specific journal like we were talking about at the end of this episode of having one for... Manifestations or for ideas to write on, or I keep one for quotes, and I have quite a few that I really like. There's this company called The Quiet Company. It's not a company, it's this really cool girl in Detroit that I met, and she makes these hand bound journals. We'll try to link to her in the show notes as well. And what I've been learning speaking of tactile writing, I've been writing a lot of handwritten notes recently. Not a lot, but a couple, and it's been really impactful and fun, and I like it a lot. Mari Andrew, past podcast guest, has this, it's a little book of postcards where you tear out the postcards, and it has different sections. Thank you, birthday, celebrate, congratulations, and I think like empathy or grief, and it's great to have, so I've been sending out these postcards and really enjoying that. So that's something I'm learning. Oh, and I've been calling people more. I've been picking up the phone and calling people. When I got back from LA, I missed my friends in LA. And instead of just texting them or voice texting even, I've been picking up the phone and calling, which feels very vulnerable and kind of scary. And talking on the phone is, I don't know, it's almost like more scary to me than hanging out in real life. Maybe, I'm not sure. But that's where I'm at right now. Listen, our skin is so different and so unique, and you have to find what works for you, but I really like this stuff Bioclarity makes. I've been using their products for years, and most recently, I started using their skincare routines. They have these little regimens that you can use, and I started using one, and they're partnering with us, which is really cool. Like I said, I've been using their products for years, and I I think they help my skin, you guys. I really like them. They have really natural ingredients. Everything is vegan and cruelty-free, paraben-free, sulfate-free, no artificial fragrances, and you can try them risk-free because they'll give you 100% of your money back if it doesn't work for you. I've been using their clear skin routine, and you know, I am acne prone, and honestly, it's really been helping. I really like it. They give you this cleanser, and then I use this spot treatment, and I had a pimple the other day. I put it on and it was it was gone the next day you know i mean it's not a guarantee but i love a product that kind of dries it out and made it work and then you put this restore on over that feels really lovely the color of the products is really cool because it's potent with these natural ingredients and i just really like it i really like these products i've been using them long before that they even became a sponsor of the podcast and i think you guys will genuinely like them too give it a try and you can with my code let it out that gets you 40 percent off any skincare routine plus an additional 15% off everything else on their website. It's an incredible deal, and you just use my code LET IT OUT at checkout, BioClarity.com for 40% off the skincare routines, and then an additional 15% off everything on their website with my code LET IT OUT at checkout. I love NED you guys. CBD is something that's been very useful for me. It helps with my stress and anxiety and if you haven't tried CBD, NED is the place to try it. You can get 15% off your order by using the code Out. All of NED's products are organic and they're made from natural ingredients, small batch, slow crafted. I've talked to the founders on my podcast and they told me that the person that grows the plants actually plays music for them and says positive affirmations to them. It's so sweet. His name is Farmer Kurt. They just seem like this lovely company and lovely people and I think honestly that makes the product better. So if you want to try out CBD it's non-psychoactive derived from the hemp plant but it's something that has been said to help with sleep treat insomnia it's anti-inflammatory it's a natural pain reliever they have really great products it's been said to help treat depression and you know it's something that it's just maybe worth to try if you haven't tried CBD before you know these are areas that it's helped and I love their they make these chapsticks that are my favorite chapsticks in the world but they're honestly their CBD oil that I put under my tongue. It's like, you know, it just helps me when I'm out in the world. I feel a little bit more in my body and it helps me sleep. And I would really love it if you guys checked it out. Supporting the sponsors is a way to help support this podcast. And it really means a lot. So their website is www. Why did I say that? It's just hello, Ned. it out. And to get your free shipping and 15% off and show your support for the show, let it out, use the code let it out. Thank you so much. The link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let me know, share it with a friend. I'm also doing a giveaway every single month. I want to give away something that I've been loving to you guys. And I feel like it makes us feel more connected and it's kind of like I'm giving a present. And I love giving presents, it's my love language. So what I'm giving away this month is a big bag of Baruca's nuts. I love these nuts so much. If you haven't tried them yet, this episode isn't even sponsored by them, but I love them so much i just had some myself i eat them all the time i put them in my pocket while i'm walking around new york city i had the founder on the podcast as i do and he was just so lovely and like shared this really intimate tender moment that had nothing to do with his company or or his nuts the nuts that he makes yeah, okay. I'm I'm going to go. <laughs> but I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to enter the giveaway, all the info on what to do for the June giveaway is in the show notes. I'll be around. I'll be around on Instagram. I'll be around next week with a brand new episode for you. And check out everything that Jess does. Read her essays, read everything that she writes in the future, including her book. And I'm really grateful that she did the podcast. And I'm really grateful to you that you hung out with us for a couple hours. If you're listening right now, let me know. Send me that pen. I want to I talk to you because I want to know what you think about this episode. You just spent a lot of time with Jess and I. Talk to you guys later. Bye.